Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's go. Oh, not yet. Very, very, very good. I'm glad to hear you're still safe down there, actually. Recorded live. Yes, I speak English. <laughs> yeah, that helps. Uh, you're one of the few, then, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. And also, yeah. be joining. Also, that will be joining us. Be uh, Frank Steffen, who has a show on on uh, this network. Also, a very good show. Not quite as good as mine, but um, it's still up there. Okay. Uh, first off, uh, uh, Mr. X, uh, you told me some things that. Uh, all Mexicans are going back into Mexico from the United States now are being checked uh, for two things, their fuel tanks and also for ammunition. Why is that? Well, what's really um, within the last uh, two weeks, there's been a, a, a drastic change. A metamorphosis has happened with the, um, uh, the country of Mexico. And uh, the, the reason they're concerned about, you know, weapons and guns and everything else has always been the same. But I think this time the next step now is the people themselves want to arm themselves. Um, to bring you a quick story right now, Mexico right now is, is not uh, very stable. We, ha- we have a situation where uh, the president had, had told people that there was going to be a change in the price of fuel. Uh, the fuel, the gasoline that is used in Mexico, oils and other things, come from the United States. And they're taken into um, northern Mexico and, and up along the western coast. They bring in oil from the American country. And what happens is that the country of Mexico has been subsidizing the price of oil by 20% for years and years and years. Many years ago... Um, Mexico used to have American companies that were drilling and were selling gasoline, uh, you know, uh, there in the country of Mexico, just like they sold in the United States. But then there was a time, uh, straight out fact, they were kicked out of out of Mexico, and uh, the oil companies became nationalized and became what they call Pemex, which means Petróleos Mexicanos, and that's the green gasoline stations you see all over the country of Mexico. So the government continued to subsidize the gasoline, but now all of a sudden the president of Mexico, seeing that the president that that the um, price of of crude oil is going down so much, and uh, and uh, you know he's continuously subsidizing the price of everything, that the country of Mexico says, you know what, we're not making any any head run with this oil. Uh, the oil that we're selling is coming out of out of the ports on the eastern side of the country and it's going into the United States. So it makes kind of a circle. But now Mexico said, okay, starting in January, American companies will be allowed to sell oil again, gasoline stations, etc., like we're used to in the United States in Mexico. And he, he passed the law. So the gas stations and stuff uh, who are buying the oil all of a sudden are not getting the subsidizing from the Mexican government, that 20%, and uh, the people all of a sudden found out that the price of their oil went up 20%. 
which caused in these last two weeks, you, you cannot imagine the, the disruptions that have been happening. You have a major toll roads and things where the government would collect lots of money from being opened up because the workers and toll roads are no longer, you know, everything's gone up in price because the price of oil goes up, price of gasoline, diesel, everything. Um, you know, the only thing that stayed the same was salaries, uh, teachers, um, you know, anything to do with the government. Uh, it, you know, all of a sudden everything went up in price and, and uh, you know, the people are still earning the same amount of money. Imagine losing 20% of your salaries um, that you're earning right now. $2 out of 10, goodbye. And so the people are really, really upset. In Tijuana, um, in, the, in the middle of the city, there's a place called Rio Tijuana, which is the river area. And um, just to give you an idea, um, a couple of days ago, they went out with, they found this gas truck going in to load up the gasoline station. Um, the civilian population, people, by the hundreds, if not thousands, are running around in different sections and they went up to this gas truck, they stopped it, opened up the, the container so that the fuel would spill out into the streets, and then ignited it. Um, huh. In the city of Rosarito, they, they have marches going on, and what, what people don't realize that's happening is the people are marching and stuff, and all of a sudden the police, the federal police, came down, and they decided to get rid of all the media. That includes any media from any country. Told them to get out. And then they proceeded to start beating up on people and stuff. Um, like any other third world country, they started doing that. Um, Mr. X, uh, again, Mr. X, again, why, why are they checking Mexicans coming back into Mexico? What, what are they looking for? They're looking for Mexican people that are now crossing the border because they can't buy gas. They're crossing the border into the United States, and they were stopping them from crossing. At first, it was the government. Now it's the people themselves the civilian population of Mexico going into the border checkpoints, coming into Mexico and stopping the people from coming from the United States into Mexico. Now, there's over 500,000 American citizens and other patriots from other countries living in Mexico. This is a very serious thing. The protests, I'm only speaking to you in the areas where I am able to, to get my information from directly and I don't tell you how I get my information directly, but it's kind of dangerous. But I get my information directly. But this stuff is going on throughout the entire country. The hopes is that eventually the people will get tired and they'll just accept the fact that now instead of earning $4 a day, they're, they're receiving $2.80 or $3.20 a day. Aren't, they, aren't they looking for weapons also, Mr. X? Yes. Uh, the weapons have always been a problem. The weapons have always been a They've always been afraid that they're going to the cartels. But now normal civilians are beginning to pack up. They're beginning to pass bullets, and, and they're beginning to get weapons and stuff because they need to defend themselves. Now, it's really a sad thing for me because I've been trying to, to you know, uh, soften that country. I've been across the border with, with some pretty uh, um, patriotic American citizens and been able to stop revolutions from happening. I think right now those people that are my friends, and I think you know them too, John, you know, that went across the border with me, you know, this time it's out of our control. It's way, way, way gone beyond that. Um, um, Mr. X, I, uh, I, uh, I think Ray would like to uh, have a question for you. All right. 
Uh, yeah, you, you know what? Uh, an interesting thing is, Mr. X, is uh, the American media doesn't. If this happened in any other country, if this was in Iraq, Iran, the Middle East, somewhere, or uh, France, and throughout Europe, we would hear about it. To uh, our media, somebody would be down there saying, "Oh, this is basically going to become a humanitarian crisis." Why do you think that we haven't? had any of our you know, blatantly, openly left-wing liberal media down here trying to, uh, down in New Mexico, trying to, uh, you know, bring to light the uh, the plight of these Mexican people. What's happening to them? Well, I think the population is ready to explode. I myself am part of the media, um, you know, and I'm telling you that people are just staying quiet. I don't know why. I, I would assume that it has something to do with the one world order. That that might be, you know, becoming a mature thing now. Um, we have our, our, you know, pact that we've created between Mexico, the United States, and Canada. But I, I see that pact. Uh, what they're trying to bring down the United States down to the level of Mexico and, and Canada coming together as one and making it to where, you know, People are just going to cross this border. I'm, I'm right yeah. now, as I'm speaking, I'm about four miles from the border, and there's nothing between me and Mexico except a big mountain. And I can tell you, if, the, if this thing turns out to, to what we think is possible that might happen, I think we're going to see waves of people coming through these mountains. And the United Mr. States, X, I think that the big... Mr. X, yeah. uh, I've got Frank, uh, Frank Stefan. Frank, uh, I've got a question for uh, Mr. X. Well, yeah, kind of a question and, a, and an observation that uh, I haven't heard or read or seen any good reason why the Mexican government would do this uh, 20% rise or not subsidize anymore, uh, except that they must want exactly what they're getting. Uh, for whatever reason, and I think you, you hit on it with the New World Order and all this. I mean, they are not happy with Trump being elected. They want to destabilize as much of the world as they possibly can. You see them doing it with China. You see them doing it with Russia. Now we have Mexico having riots because of something that didn't need to happen. The Mexican government could keep subsidizing that. All this other stuff is, is meaningless to that. I mean, it, you know, they can pump their own oil. They own all that. Like you said, they nationalized all the Mexican oil. There's a lot of oil under the Mexican land. They could get that. They could subsidize it. They don't have to do this, is my point. Uh, but they are doing it, and they must be doing it for a purpose. And I have to figure that whatever is happening was their purpose. Well, yeah, I would have to agree with that. you, uh, Frank. Frank, and uh, uh, you know, again, yeah, Mexico does have a lot of oil, and, and Frank, it makes a lot of sense there. Why would they uh, go this? They've always been afraid of a revolution for many years. That's why they've been sending so many uh, illegals up to uh, the United States to relieve the, uh, the the pressure valve. So it seems to me that uh, they do have a plan. Uh, they're heavy at work to try to stop Trump. I mean, uh, the wall and everything else. I mean, there's so many factions involved here. It's just uh, beyond belief. You know, but, and on uh, the other hand, when you when you said imagine 20%, well, a lot of Americans don't have to imagine it. It happened to them. We call it Obamacare. 
you know, the the people that are involved in that that aren't getting subsidized in this country, you know, they're looking at 20% out of their paycheck just to go to premiums for that nightmare. Well, we're yeah. in the That's process right. I say, Mr. Having Mr. an explosion. Uh, I'm, I'm wait, here in Tijuana. Uh, Ray, go, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was able to ask Mr. X. Uh, I know you're in Tijuana. That's pretty close to, uh, I mean, it's right on that California border. Have you heard of anything like this going on deeper into the interior of Mexico, into some of the bigger cities? Or is anything like, uh, is Mexico City or the people down there pretty much, uh, you know, like you said, with the tanker truck getting set up, wanting to arm themselves, or is this, this just something that you think is maybe closer to the U.S. border? No. I think it's happening through to the entire country. And the goal for the Mexican government to answer the question of what they're trying to do is they're trying to get away from paying that 20% subsidy that's taking away money from the government that's getting less and less of an income to, to supposedly stabilize the country of Mexico so it doesn't collapse and go back into these horrific debts that they had before. Um, so that, that's the big thing. They're hoping that eventually when the American gas stations go on in there, that uh, they're going to be able to have different prices, gasoline, it won't be said by the government, and the challenge is for whoever can get the most sales of gas, and they're going to mess around with the price so that they can make the, the Mexican public uh, better. They'll have a better gasoline type of thing and stuff. That's what's being told to those of us that are in the, in the supposed loop. But, you know, the, the country itself might go too far. It, it just might just go too far this time. The next city right now uh, that's going to go into major turmoil is the city of Mexicali, which is about 100-and-something miles from me. That country has a real possibility. It's the capital of the state of Baja, California. And that country, right, that state, that city has some, some real issues um, yeah. coming up to it within the next few days. You've been Mr. there X, with me, John. Mr. X, yes. can you hold that thought? We're coming up on break. Uh, we're going to be right after break. We're going to be coming back and finding out uh, what you found out about ISIS working with the drug cartels to attack American cities, number one. And uh, also, I know about Mexicali because I was down there with you, and I asked uh, the, the, the vice uh, governor there, uh, about Chinese restaurants, and I was astounded when he told me there were 150 Chinese restaurants in Mexicali. So uh, there's a lot of things that work down there that people aren't aware of. I hope it doesn't happen. But uh, right after break, uh, we're going to come back and uh, finish this discussion from Mr. X and also Rattlesnake Ray and uh, Frank. And if you'd like to call in, the toll-free number is 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980. Listen to America Betrayed on AVR, American Voice Radio Network. See you right after the break.
distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. on ABR, American Voice Radio Network. That was a little old-time music, uh, the way America used to be. I wish uh, it would bring it back. I hope Trump can bring it back. He's going to have quite a quite a, a job, especially after watching these slime balls, uh, these uh, Democrats and all of them. I mean, uh, it's a criminal enterprise. We've got to stand up and stand tall. Uh, Mr. X, like I said, I, I've gotten three different sources telling me that uh, uh, the uh, ISIS is working with the drug cartels. One area is Nuevo uh, Leon. I may be pronouncing it uh, wrong, but other areas, three other areas down there. Have you got to, And I've talked to you briefly about it, and you said there's, if you find out that that's true, that Mexican government is uh, working with them or anything, you could get the military down there to uh, put a stop to it. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, that would be it, the Mexican government is not interested in bringing in those people to destroy themselves. But I can tell you this much right now that I my experience has been that when I have I have approached those people here at the border, um, I have tried to go to the American customs by walking across in San Isidro and speaking to to whoever was in charge there at the border crossing. And the immigration officers there took me like a clown. So what I did, I said, well, shoot, the heck with this. I don't really care. So what I did is I went back across the border into Mexico, and I talked to some, you know, Mexican soldiers that were smaller than the rifle they were carrying. 
And I went up and I mentioned the people and that they were speaking in Arabic and they had some clothing that wasn't appropriate for either Mexicans or Americans to be wearing. And I just told them about it and they just kind of looked at me, looked, bounced their little heads up and down and they go on over there with their with their big old giant rifles with a machete at the end or whatever that, what do they call it, bayonet at the end. And before I knew it, I saw them walking out with all of them in line. The next day, the Mexican government reported that they'd caught um, 11 of those type of terrorist people at the border. And just as simple as that, they took them away. So the, the explanation that I got from the American customs agent was is that Mexico is a sovereign country, and they have no right to be looking, even if it's just right on the other side of the border, of which I told them. I told them, I described them, I told them where they were at and everything. And I've had other incidences up. Uh, slightly out of there on the other side of Rosarito where there was uh, those type of people gathering, and the Mexicans did gather them up and take them away, and they don't treat them like Guantanamo. I mean, these guys are really tough on those people. So I have to go back and believe that, that the Mexican people don't want those people in their country because their families are there. They're, you know, everybody that, that is uh, related that they care about is also in that country. We need to, we need to come together... We need to come together with our Latin American friends who do trade with us and stuff. If, if there's anything else but to do commerce and trade, we need to, to make sure that we don't alienate people by saying statements that are, that are not logical. We, ne- yeah, we need Ray, to make uh, sure that... Ray, have you uh, seen any evidence in your area, Arizona, down there of uh, Middle Eastern people coming through? Well, there. That I've never seen any of it myself, John. But I've had uh, 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 other different ranchers and people that have been out in the, the back country and border patrol agents that have said yes, they've found quite a few uh, Muslim, the Quran, uh, prayer rugs, or a lot of evidence that Muslims have been brought up through the border. And also, there's the there's always the stories that. Uh, in Mexico, and this is uh, over, you know, east where our, our favorite uh, cocaine brain used to have hold of it. Uh, Douglas, Arizona, and our Prieta, Arizona, the actual customs agents have told me that there are several small, very, you know, not uh, the big mosques that you would see somewhere, but uh, there are some mosques being built few areas like that in Mexico, and I did wonder about it, question two, because like Mr. X was saying, the Mexican people aren't, uh, you know, if they're aware of that, Mexico is predominantly a Catholic society, and it definitely doesn't go with it, but when I did bring up something like this to customs agents, they said, you have to remember one thing, in small villages throughout Mexico, and even though Arapieta has a uh, over a hundred thousand people. The Mexican economy, the Mexican government, the people in Mexico work on the mordida, the bite, the bribe. So everything is a payoff there. And they said they that is these people going. It's just like the United States. Uh, well, these are nice people. You know, they're really great people. They're very modest and in a way, you know, they're not in your face or anything and it was what they're doing so uh as long as they said that a governor in mexico or whoever 
would receive enough of a payment to allow something like that to uh, be built, a small mosque, then they said, uh, yeah, you know, they, they have no, no doubt about it. They do, they do say that there are some mosques down in uh, Mexico right along this Mexican border. Yeah, you brought up uh, Cocaine Bahrain. Uh, I did an investigation into that guy many, many years ago. Really amazing. He used to be an FBI special agent, and uh, he was educated in Colombia and I think in Mexico. And he became mayor of uh, uh, Douglas, Arizona, and that's his nickname, Cocaine Bahrain. Uh, all the cocaine was coming right through that county, and I talked to some of the Border Patrol agents in that area. Most were re very reluctant to uh, uh, talk to him, but I did find a supervisor who knew who I was and uh, somebody I knew in San Diego area. And, and he said, oh, yeah, we have all the information. And I said, well, I have a quite quite a uh, file on uh, this guy. It's just amazing. And also, hey, the John, thing, uh, yeah. John, one thing that, that that is very important that I mentioned that I had over uh, missed. Um, in uh, Tijuana right now, in the last two weeks, three weeks, there, there has been a, a sighting of a large group of African people that are being passed into the United States. Um, my understanding is that they're bringing them across like 10 or so a day quietly into the United States. They are from Africa. They don't speak Spanish or English. And uh, that is being done legally. So this is something that is totally new to you in your program right now. I will try to confirm that for you and tell you where they're going through and stuff. But the these black people are being brought across the border from Tijuana. Uh, and I'm so sorry, if I didn't bring it up, you know, I forget things real fast. Right. Kind of like well, I, I heard sort of something that, 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 I heard that, well, that's because of that slime ball. Uh, yeah, they're sleeping the White House now, bringing in, um, the the goal, whole goal is to destroy the white race. Uh, that, that's uh, the goal, it's called white genocide. Uh, and it also destroyed the middle class, which was basically the uh, the white race. So uh, they're bringing them into different areas also for voting, uh, because look uh, look what happened. They saw what states that they need to to get. Uh, they're always looking ahead uh, here. So uh, that's more. Uh, also, Frank, you, uh, John, I'd like to ask Mr. Mr. X if he's ever heard of uh, anything that such as it is what I'm going to tell you. Uh, I have had custom agents, like I say, in in guys up higher in the administration who couldn't ever bring this up to, uh, you know, to Washington, D.C., they just uh, basically hide it. But uh, there are a lot of stories that go on that there are Muslims from whatever. They don't, they don't say where the Muslims are from in Mexico that are actually living with the Mexican population, paying people in Mexico to live with them and paying them quite a bit of money, a lot of money. And what they're doing is they're learning to speak Spanish and they're taking on, uh, for the most part, when they come across the border, it would be very difficult for the average person to differentiate between them and a Mexican. The, uh, the customs agents are, I mean, they, you know, they can they spot a lot of this, they know it, and they say they have picked up several of them that they yeah. found out have come from a Muslim country, although they've had no ties to ISIS or anything like that. They couldn't pin that on them, but they wondered why a Muslim that could basically come up here and really, like any other Mexican, just sneak into the country in the United States fairly easily. 
why they would go to the extent of trying to learn Mexican culture, Mexican language, mannerisms, and whatnot. Have you, have you heard well, anything about I, that? Yes, I have. And let me just tell you, I can confirm that 100% because we have been in a situation where I, as a volunteer, have been able to be in a position to apprehend some of these people because they use my, my abilities to speak Spanish. You know, I'm somewhat educated in both cultures and both people, so I, I understand it. But let me tell you something that goes beyond that. To carry it forward beyond that, the reason that they're getting together with the Mexican families is to pick up the accents and all that as you speak with them for a while. And then they also wait for somebody to die. When the person dies, they take over their birth certificates, and they don't come in sneaking across the border. They actually legally come across the border as Mexican citizens. You know, they have plenty of money to pay all the requirements that the American government requires. And, uh, you know, for all definitions and all purposes, they are the people that is on that birth certificate. But that, that is, is exactly what, um, just what you said is exactly what the customs agents told me, that they will, for, for every 100% you look at them, you would think that they are a Mexican citizen. And they said they've even gone so far as to actually apply for Mexican citizenship. So, uh, that is, yeah, that is, like you said, you're one more step beyond that. They, uh, in the in the border patrol control world, they everybody who is not Mexican is considered an OTM, means other than Mexican. And you'd be surprised that the people that are coming from all around the world don't just think it's the Mexicans or the Cubans or the Puerto Ricans, whatever. Well, the Puerto Ricans come illegally. But what I'm trying to tell you is, is everybody that is not supposed to be coming in here is also coming through this border. Um, you know, people from Africa, people, even European people, we uh, got a hold of some people that were from Holland that gave us information about a um, military base being built in, in Holland that later on turned out to be true, and they actually stopped the, the Russians from building this base, and they got it for an exchange but even the Dutch and, and other countries that want to, the people want to come into our country because it has to do with their overtaxation in their countries. Don't think that Europe is in perfect shape either. There are people trying to leave Europe because of the influx of uh, uh, Muslim people and their, you know, their rights and, and their abilities to make work. I met with some people that are working three jobs uh, in one day so that they can take care of their families because they're just not making it. One of them was in the military and working two jobs on the side. So, uh -huh. yeah, that is happening. Um, uh, Frank, very uh, Frank, you had a question? You got a question for Mr. X? No, actually, I'm just listening, and it's uh, very interesting. You know, yeah, Mr. X, what you said is right about people from different countries come in. The agents down here have told me that they're seeing a major influx of people from Romania. And, uh, that is true. Chinese remaining uh, po uh, from Poland also, and I think Poland actually is uh, pretty stable throughout Europe right now, why they had a lot of people from Poland come in. But they said Romania is uh, a real high percentage of the people they're picking up. Yeah. There's several countries that are in the process of collapse economically. The more intelligent people that have some type of uh, uh, maybe I could say educational knowledge, not necessarily from the secular world, but just understanding how commerce is working, they can see that the economy, the dollar, for instance, they can see their own currencies not going in the right direction. Those of us in America that think that our currencies 
our American dollar is so powerful that nothing can go wrong. I mean, I've been part of devaluations and, you know, collapses of money that have just been horrible in my life, my personal life. And if that were ever to happen to our country, everybody's so far into debt with credit cards and houses and, and everything. We're in, everybody's in the hundreds of thousands, and it's easy to get credit. But gosh darn it, man, we're going too far, you know? Uh, That's Mr. X, did you, did you tell me that uh, there were some people that are living? You're up in the mountains uh, still, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, you told me that there were some people that uh, had million-dollar homes that are now living up in the mountains uh, near where you're at because uh, they they failed. They they just couldn't make it anymore. Is that correct? That's me. It's just no, a simple no. just, there, no, you said there were a lot of people, people that were in real estate. I know when we were doing that film uh, about the water crisis, uh, you know, that one neighborhood uh, that had a, uh, their artificial lake or whatever it was was completely dry. Uh, we saw like 12 for sale signs just on one corner. You say that, uh, that uh, you know, people are trying to sell their houses and everything. Do you think that's yes. changing any, with, with this weather that uh, they're having out there now? With this, uh, Yes. Uh, we have a little bit of rain going on in San Diego right now and some rain going up north, which is a God-given blessing to our country. But let me tell you something. The 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 The... The problem of water is definitely hit San Diego County itself. I'm going to report on what I know and see and feel and walk and visit, you know. I can tell you that there's a lot of farms. Uh, my understanding is from the county that up to 70% of the people are being trucked in water because their water wells are beginning to go down. The, the for sale signs, they're not as bad right now as they were right before the elections. Trump, believe it or not, in my opinion, helped us stabilize our country. And God bless him. I hope he listens to God and blesses our country with his, with his help. But, you know, the economy here in San Diego and the outskirts is you don't see that major type of farming like you used to. You don't have the cattle, the Angus cattle and all that because there's no water. Um, quite frankly, it's stopped. Um, I don't know where it's going to go. I just see the water going further and further. There are some lakes out here called Otai Lakes. Uh, they started first draining water from a, there was a three-lake system. One was Lake Morena. Lake Morena is just about dry now, or is dry. And that water was being sent to another lake, which, uh, which was Lake Barrett. And that was providing water to Otai Lakes, which is where the U.S. Olympic training grounds are at, where the kayaking and all that stuff here in Southern California. But now, if you drive down, Lake Barrett has run out of water, and they're trying to keep at least a little bit there for fires, et cetera. But Otai Lakes, if you go along, you can see the bush and, and um, things going down thousands of feet now where it was not at before. So there, there's talk now of moving the U.S. Olympic training ground because that lake will eventually dry up. Well, I, I do have a question now, Mr. X. Uh, what do you make of the fact that I've, I've got a friend down in, uh, oh, where is it? It's outside, it's in the Fresno area, and he lives down there, and they've been getting rain like crazy, and yet the state of California has all the dams open. They're running that water out of there. They're not filling up these lakes. They're letting it all run out. What, what do you make of I, that? I was there, uh, I believe it was yesterday, day before yesterday. I guess it was the day before yesterday, Monday. I, w I went out there to take a look, John and, and Ray, um, out to that same area where I went to 
and I spoke to some people down there and observed uh, what was going on. And, yes, uh, they've had some rain come down, but it's one year out of so many years. And, yes, they're able to irrigate their plants and stuff, but, you know, they're pumping the water out of the ground. When me and John were there, we were told that the water, that the land itself, and this is a huge area, is going down a foot to two feet a year, the land is, is uh, caving into the ground. The, Sinking, the, right. um, yeah, so, you know, that is a fact. We had congressional people that were hiding from us that wouldn't talk to us face-to-face. Me and John had to go talk to some people. We talked to, to uh, some young girls, if you can remember, John, that they were telling us these girls were scared. These people were saying our families are going to lose their farms, and we need more water. We need more water. We filmed other people that had trucking businesses and stuff, and they say that the people upstairs were the, the, the senators and stuff in the state of California at the time were saying that um, they were going to stop giving water to the farming communities and send it to the cities. Why? Because that's where the votes are at. The farmers count not. But right. We're, we're, is that not true, John? We, we listen to it yeah, with our that, own it, eyes. You're talking, you're talking about the... That's true here in, uh, right here in Arizona. Definitely. One, yeah. one day, well, that, uh, two feet a year, it's sinking uh, where all the fruits and vegetables are growing, and also because there's no aquifer, no aquifer left, and and they have to drill down uh, somewhere time to up to 3,000 feet. Well, yeah, but and, my, and, my point is they are having torrential downpours. More yeah, they release the water, Frank. And they're releasing the water rather than capturing it. Yeah, yes. because... It has they, to do with the cleaning. They want to control the resources. They say if you can't take the guns away from them, what are they going to do without water? It's total control Joe, of, the, of the masses. Frank, just what you said, uh, when you're saying that, Frank, about them releasing the water, I've got a friend of mine that lives up in uh, around Redding, California, and on around the Sacramento River, and there are some areas out there where the rivers run into the ocean, and there's some type of fish. It's an environmental thing. There's some type of little fish that survives in the ocean but uh, survives around the outlets of the rivers, and they are actually just what you said, Frank, allowing the water, the fresh water to run into the ocean as opposed to allowing it to fill up in the dams. They, they're they just uh, allowing this water to go out. They're not capturing it with the dams. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the environmentalists. You know, they, they, they'd like to destroy every dam there was and every person in the country to save some little fret fin shad. So, uh, hey, guys, I have uh, what we're saying, coming up guys. on the end of the show here, and uh, I hope that we can have you back on, Mr. X, to find out if you're able to uh, find out about this ISIS uh, drug cartel and maybe put a stop to it somehow. And, Ray, uh, you know, down there where you're at, uh, you know, very dangerous uh, hotspot, Mr. X may chase everybody over to your area. So, and uh, yeah, you let's hope he can build the wall. And so they can build the wall and and put uh, everything back in place. Uh, I'm going to end with a song that uh, is a little interesting, I think. And uh, I just wanted to, I just wanted to show you what uh, Trump is facing. I just have something here. In 1998, Kodak had 170,000 employees and sold 85% of all photo paper worldwide. Within just a few years, their business model disappeared and they went bankrupt. What happened to Kodak will happen in a lot of industries in the next 10 years, and most people won't even see it coming. Do you think 
Did you think in 1998 that three years later you would never take pictures on film again? And be, with the new uh, artificial intelligence and everything, uh, it's going to sneak up on you. There'll be cars that will drive themselves. You'll just uh, get it, pick it, uh, have your pick you up in front, take you home, and you won't even be driving cars anymore. It'll happen that fast. But uh, that's what he's facing. And again, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, go to National Writer Syndicate to find out sh the show next week. That's nationalwritersyndicate.com. And make sure you listen to Frank Steffen's uh, show here on AVR, American Voice Radio Network, where you're going to hear the truth all the time. And uh, National Writer Syndicate, you're going to read about it. And Mr. X, you stay safe down there. Uh, stay in contact. Let me know uh, what you find out about ISIS and, and uh, also the drug cartels. And, Ray, you, you be safe down there. You've been a good friend for a long time. And uh, try to get a little smaller horse for my wife next time, okay? I'll see what God I can do for America. you. God bless America. God bless America. America. Definitely. Uh, try to hang around and listen to song. Try to listen to this song. I think you might find it interesting. And uh, here I am signing off. Hope you enjoy it.
political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188 That's 800-375-4188 Protect yourself and your family. And this is Financial Survival for Wednesday evening, um, 14th day of January, year of our Lord, 2015. James Corbett will be our guest after the first break. He'll be there for the last uh, two segments of the program. We always look forward to talking to James uh, each week, and uh, hope you will stay tuned. What we got? The markets today, gold is down $1.80 to $1,230.10 per ounce. Silver is down 25 cents to $16.94 per ounce. Platinum is down 10 to 12.35. Palladium is down 40 to 7.79. That just it just kind of amazes me. I just don't expect palladium to make $40 moves in a single day. Um that's Basically, almost 5% in one day. What happened to palladium? I don't know, but it was strange. Dow Jones was down over 300 points earlier in the day. It closed out 187 points down at 17,427. NASDAQ was down 22 points to 4,639. New York Stock Exchange was down almost 58 points to 10,565. 
Uh, U.S. dollar index was up 10 cents, was down earlier in the day by 15, 20. Uh, it, it was down not by 15 or 20 cents. It was down by 0.15 to 0.19. But it closed out at 92.17, which is still surprising. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago when it was doubtful that the that the uh, U.S. dollar would be able to hold above 72. And here it is at 92, and no telling how high it's going to go. Uh, crude oil, well, as earlier, uh, it's it's 29 cents down in the over in the night in the evening markets to 48.19, but during the day it actually gained two dollars and change. I don't have the number uh, for the daily earlier today, but it was down two dollars and change, almost five percent. Six percent, I think, uh, for the day on the American markets, evening markets, it's it has now fallen another. It's fallen 0.29, 29 cents on the uh, on the barrel. Uh, what's any of it mean? What's all of it mean? Don't know. Can't say. All you can do is throw your arms up. It's like being on a on a roller coaster. Just throw your arms up at times and say "wee" and enjoy the ride as best you can. Uh, first thing I want to talk about we, for the remainder of the first segment is I've got there's an article on from the New York Times about robots. And the headline is, as robots grow smarter, American workers struggle to keep up. A machine that it administers sedatives recently began treating patients at a Seattle hospital. At a Silicon Valley hotel, a bellhop robot delivers items to people's rooms. Last spring, a software algorithm broke a, a, a breaking news article about an earthquake that Los Angeles Times had published. Although fears the technology will displace jobs are at least as old as the Luddites, there are signs that this time may really be different. The technological breakthroughs of recent years, allowing machines to mimic the human mind, are enabling machines to do knowledge jobs and service jobs in addition to factory and clerical work. Over the same 15-year period, the digital technology has inserted itself into nearly every aspect of life. And when they say this digital technology that's inserted itself into nearly every aspect of life, they are talking primarily about the Internet. So, so while the digital technology is jumping in here, while the Internet is making you know, remarkable progress and in being integrated into our into our national infrastructure and our economy in a way that it's it it can't be removed right now. We can't get rid of the internet. I mean, we are dependent on it. We have become dependent on the internet. At the same time, we have become dependent on the internet. The job market has fallen into a long malaise. Even with the economy's recent improvement, the share of working-age adults who are working is substantially lower than a decade ago and lower than any point in the 1990s, which tells us the percentage of workers in this country has diminished in a way that's not like, there's not likely to be a recovery. 
Eric Brynjolfsson, an economist at MIT, said this is the biggest challenge of our society for the next decade. The challenge is, what are we going to do for jobs? You know, there are reports that some factories that located from here to China 10 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago, but 10 years ago, say that, are now rethinking that relocation and saying they'd like to move back to the United States. And we know that when the factories left the United States and went to China or other third world countries, that they took their jobs with them. And they left people unemployed who used to have good manufacturing jobs working on the assembly lines, primarily in you know factories here in the United States. Those people were out of work. And it wasn't just that you were out of work because the plant closed down. The industry, once one plant, one factory from a particular industry starts making shoes, for example, in China, they are taking advantage of such low labor rates over in China that the other factories had to either go out of business right then or also move to China to take care of to take advantage of those low in, low uh, uh, wages in China and then sell their products competitively back here in the United States. Otherwise, the cheap the products made with cheap labor in China they would you know they would threaten the survival of the businesses that relied on american labor this is one of the results of global free trade the loss of our of our of our tariffs and it's just the evidence that this was a terrible idea to say yay let's have global free trade it's really not good for anyone in an advanced country with the exception of those people who who own multinational corporations they can profit from this, but the average American can't. The multinational corporations can profit from globalism and they, because they can make products where labor is dirt cheap and sell products where people still have reasonably high incomes and or credit ratings. And the result is the multinational corporations can make a big profit. You build your product where labor is cheap, you sell it where people have money, you can make a big profit for yourself. It does not serve the average man, at least not in this country. It's been good for people of China, but it's no good for Americans. And the result is we have a permanent rate of unemployment, well, a rate of unemployment that is high and may be permanent. The government says we're down to 5.6% unemployed. But John Williams says if you calculate the unemployment rate, as we did 10, 15 years ago, if we use the same formula, our real unemployment rate right now is 22, 23%. Now, I don't know who's telling, I don't know which estimate of unemployment is more reliable, which one is closer to the truth, but I'm inclined to believe that John Williams from shadowstats.com is presenting the level of unemployment that we really have to contend with. We are talking about, if, if it's true that unemployment rates are really in excess of 20% in this country, then we're talking about unemployment rates that are comparable to what we're seeing during the Great Depression. What are we going to do with these people? Um, this is not... This this is this is a terrible problem, and as the one 
economist from MIT said, look, this is the biggest problem facing us for the decade. I don't even think it's the biggest problem for the decade. I think it might be the biggest problem for several decades into the future. What are we going to do with people to provide, how can we provide jobs for people when there are no jobs, when the machines are taking over the jobs? If you can afford a robot, the robot is so much more efficient and so much more profitable than an ordinary man, the robots are going to put ordinary people out of work. And they're going to put the people out of work who lack the education or intelligence or drive to find another job. I mean, there are plenty of people who can dig ditches. I used to dig ditches when I grew up in a business digging ditches. And you don't have to be all that intelligent to do that work. But what happens when they find a machine to dig the ditch? Where do you go? If you don't have much, if you don't have a significant intelligence, you don't have a, uh, an adequate education, where do you go when they put the ditch diggers out of work? And this is the kind of problem we're faced with today. American workforce gains skills at a slower rate than at any time in the past, that's during the past 15 years, and at a slower rate than many other countries. Americans between the ages of 55 and 64 are among the most skilled in the world. For older Americans, we grew up, after World War II, we grew up and we learned how to work and work well. We were skilled and we were prosperous. Now we have a significant number of Americans who are not skilled, and they are not going to be prosperous. And what are we going to do with them? Just try to duck them when we go grocery shopping, hope we don't get get uh, robbed, mugged, whatever? What are we going to do with these people or give them what kind of work? Government jobs is one suggestion. We're going to have more government jobs. But if we do... As the size of government grows, the remaining liberty in this country inevitably has to end. What do government workers do besides regulate other people who have real jobs? Or maybe they don't even have real jobs, but the government wants to regulate them anyway. As we have a bigger and bigger government, if that's where we go, and I'm not sure that we will, I don't think we can. As the government grows... If it grows, it inevitably enacts more regulations. And before you know it, you're going to have somebody inspecting you every day to make sure that your shoes are correctly tied or maybe properly shined. You know, there'll be somebody walking through your neighborhood, check out, because government says you've got to have your shoes just right. This will be part of the consequence of having a significant portion of people who are unemployed, in the private sector, and therefore, I must either be put on welfare, just perpetual welfare, or given jobs in the public sector. As one man points out, we're going to enter a world in which there's more wealth and less need to work. This is the economist again from MIT. More wealth. We're seeing evidence, you know, but he makes that comment, but how is that possible? How can we have more wealth and less need to work? Because if we don't work, who is going to buy the wealth? We can go out there and stack up corn 
let's suppose, let's produce enough corn to cover the state of Nebraska, the ground, all the ground in the state of Nebraska, three foot high corn. All right, I don't mean three foot on the stalks. I mean three foot high of grain, corn grain, covering the entire state of Nebraska. Well, that's a wonderful thing on one level. Yay, we have a lot of corn. Yay, nobody's going to go hungry. But who can afford to buy the corn if they don't have jobs? There is a kind of, there. there's a relationship between people who have jobs and spending money in order to keep people at work that are producing whatever products people are buying. When you eliminate a significant portion of the workforce and say, no, we don't need you anymore, what are they going to buy? I've seen reports where one woman, I believe she was in... Uh, in uh, California, down in L.A., she claimed to be making about sixty grand a year off all the taking advantage of all the welfare that was available to subsidize her home and her food and whatever else. And she said, this is great. All I have to do is just get up and I go and talk to my friends and, you know, eat, have lunch, dinner, come back home at night and rest of the sermon. I don't have to do a thing except keep track of how much money's coming in from the government. Well, we are faced with a cup that brings up a couple of interesting questions. Is mankind capable of living and prospering without a need to work? Some of us can. Some of us don't, don't mind on being on welfare. Some of us don't mind our children being on welfare and just taking advantage of this alleged entitlement. But I know historically a man who lost his job when you finally retired back in the 60s, when a man retired, he typically died within about two years after he lost his job. After he retired, it's not as if he was fired. He said, well, you're too old. We can't use you anymore. Here's your retirement party and your gold watch. And nice talking to you. Everybody gives him a round of applause. He goes home to die. And on average, he was dead in two years. I don't know that that's still true today, but there, there has to be elements of society that can't make it without a job. And I don't mean they can't make it without money. They may still have some money. But we find dignity and meaning in our ability to work. And when you don't work anymore, what are you here for? Huh? And what about the rest of us? Can, can all of us live on welfare if push comes to shove? And what about the rest of us who still have jobs? Are they really capable of maintaining the charitable impulse to keep working to support those who won't work or can't work? We are headed for a lot of trouble with robots and electronics and digital computers and so on. They're not just the blessing that some people might imagine. And I don't know how we're going to resolve this problem. Let's take a break for some commercial announcements. James Corbett from the Corbett Report will join us shortly. Please stay tuned.
pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate. For those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663 or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663 or thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. The cost and risk of conventional health care concern you. Wouldn't you prefer inexpensive solutions to health problems rather than disease management? If so, tune into Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. I'm Alfred Addis. This is Financial Survival brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188. Our guest tonight is James Corbett. James moved to Japan in 2004. He's been publishing the Corbett Report for the past eight years. As an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics, he's also an editorial re- uh, writer for the International Forecaster, a weekly newsletter uh, created by the recently deceased economic analyst Bob Chapman. So, welcome, James. Well, thank you so much for having me back on. Always a pleasure always to talk to you. Enjoy it. Always enjoy it. I look forward to it. One of my. People ask me, what do you do during the weekend? I usually say, what's a weekend? But what's the highlight? You know, this is this is one of the highlights of my highlights of my week. Uh, the, these interviews, and it's that may be 
testimony do I really don't get out that much. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I guess so. one of my highlights. <laughs> or we're just that type of person. Why not? Yeah, I understand. It's, it's yeah, a little, uh, not, not exactly a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. <laughs> it's uh, a little, another classification, perhaps. I've got a headline here from the Associated Press. says, Japan cabinet okays record military budget with eye on China. All right, Japan is allegedly, uh, what, 5 trillion yen, $42 billion uh, defense budget. Um, uh, it's gone up. Oh, wait a second. They they endorsed, well, their total budget is 96 trillion yen uh, for the total budget and 5 trillion for defense. Does this signify trouble? Is this just an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure? Is it significant or uh, just a gesture? I think for the time being, it is not significant in the sense that I don't think that this is going to lead to any sort of imminent conflict. It Mm -hmm. is obviously significant because the trend obviously puts Japan and China you know, at loggerheads and with the possibility that even if it isn't really in the game plan per se, of course, tensions in naval uh, predicaments can always lead to events, even if uh, even if they're not necessarily planned that way. So it's always worrying with this kind of rhetoric, but not I, I, I again, I don't think any sort of imminent conflict is going to happen from it. But it does show that, uh, as we've been noting here for years now, the uh, the defense budgets of all of the main players in the South China Sea, the East China Sea area. Have been increasing steadily over the past several years, and uh, there's no sign that that's going to change in the new year, unfortunately. And I think that ultimately, the probably the easiest way to understand this. I mean, not only obviously because these types of uh, budgets always are good for the crony capitalists in the positions uh, that uh, the, the crony positions uh, near government who benefit directly from these, but also it's a politically useful thing because obviously people like to rally around the flag in in any nation and it plays as well here in Japan as it does in the U.S. or anywhere else. And that might might explain why, in fact, uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe's approval rating actually went up slightly this past month, which is uh, head-scratching to me. I can't I can't think of any reason whatsoever why his approval rating would be going up at this point, especially considering the economic doldrums uh, that Japan continues to linger in, except for moves like this, which, again, always play well with his uh, political base and sort of appeal to patriotism. So uh, so I think that's the way we can probably make most sense of this on both sides, on the Japanese side, the Chinese side, and every other side here in the East China Sea area. If we don't have nuclear weapons, if Japan doesn't have nuclear weapons at its disposal, what are the chances that Japan can throw up a genuine defensive shield that's able to hold China at bay? Well, you see, that's an interesting if in that statement, because um, it's not at all clear that Japan doesn't have nuclear weapons, not in the Mm -hmm. sense that they have weapons actually ready at the moment. But as I've pointed out on my podcast a number of times, the nuclear energy industry is an adjunct of the nuclear weapons industry. It is. Uh, it provides the uh, the fuel for the nuclear bombs, basically, uh, is the shorthand way of putting it. And, um, and so it has been... I think quietly understood for a very long time that Japan's nuclear energy industry 
is such that it could quite easily and quite quickly produce into nuclear weapons manufacturing if and when that time came. And just along that note, I mean, we get little bits and pieces of this, uh, uh, this puzzle in the news headlines sometimes. There was a, an interesting story a couple of years ago that revealed a secret program um, through which the Japanese government was, for example, allowing uh, Amer- the American military to uh, trans- transit nuclear materials and even nuclear weapons through Japan in the 70s and 80s, uh, completely contrary to everything that Japan said publicly and uh, what they had committed to with their non-nuclear principles. Um, Also, some secret plutonium deals that had been going on between the U.S. and Japan. And then just last June, we had this interesting story about the IAEA uh, talking about how Japan had enough undeclared uh, plutonium to make 80 nuclear bombs, and uh, just contrast that to the types of, uh, of uh, problems that Iran has to deal with with its nuclear energy issue, and Japan can have 80 nuclear bombs worth of plutonium undeclared that the IAEA kind of finds out about through the back door, and uh, no one seems to raise a big fuss about this or mm-hmm. raises the possibility that we might have to go in and bomb Japan, of course. Um, so, I mean, again, just part of the nuclear hypocrisy that's part of the course. So I don't think it's a clear at all um, that Japan isn't capable of being a nuclear nation if and when they want to be. I think if there was, even if they didn't have nuclear weapons of their own, I'm going to suppose that if push came to shove and it really looked like there was an imminent conflict between Japan and China, the United States would supply nuclear weapons. Oh, I think there's yeah. there's no question about that. If it came to a certain point yeah. of that conflict, I think you're exactly right. And we have to keep in mind that the official nuclear uh, doctrine of the, the U.S. Uh, military right now is to keep first strike nuclear uh, uh, warfare on the table as an option. That is still in the nuclear warfare doctrine. As reaffirmed, I think as recently as 2012, the last time I looked, the, the latest strategy documents. So, um, so I, I mean, let's not Let's not be uh, Pollyanna about this. The American That's exactly right. nuclear umbrella is over uh, the, the entire East Asia area. And, of course, yeah. Taiwan is usually seen as a flashpoint, has historically been seen as one, but Japan could equally be one with the growing conflict with China. I understand. It's dangerous. Uh, one of those things where you can hope that everyone you know, stays reasonable, sensible, and doesn't do something completely stupid. Uh, just, just one other thing that I should mention. I think it's almost time for the annual joint U, uh, U.S.-South Korean military exercises where they do such things as drop um, dummy nuclear uh, warheads on the Korean Peninsula as part of those exercises, which North Korea always strongly protests, uh, obviously, but uh, South Korea and the U.S. continue to persist in that every single year, and I think that's just coming up, and I, I believe I saw a headline to the effect that North Korea is offering to halt its own uh, uh, nuclear weapons or nuclear program um, with the proviso that the U.S. and South Korea end their joint uh, exercises, and from what I understand, there's no chance that that's going to happen. What do you suppose the chances are that the United States would find some pretext to actually nuke North Korea? They're not big enough to do anything in return. It's the sort of thing where, under right circumstances, the President of the United States could, in theory, gain some popularity by saying, oh my gosh, these people have done something just terrible, so we've decided to nuke them. Is that completely irrational? 
Well, I mean, it is irrational. The question is, is it possible? And yeah, right. That's two are different uh, yeah. questions. But, um, but uh, you know, I, again, I think I would go back to the 2D and 3D geopolitical chess games that we talked about before. So in the 2D nation-state kind of warfare system, I mean, it, it, you could imagine something like that happening, but there's no way that you could imagine that happening without China obviously being immediately and directly involved in that because China is sort of North Korea's big brother in a way. I mean, they're the only nation that kind of has the, the, the normal diplomatic relations with them. And obviously that would be seen as a direct assault on the doorstep of China in a dramatic escalation. So I, uh, from that perspective, I mean, that would be basically tantamount to a, a, almost a declaration of war on China, pretty much if that happened. So I don't expect that would happen in that 2D game. The only way that that could even be feasible would be in the 3D chess game that I like to talk about where, of course, a lot of these oligarchs in various countries are linked in through various organizations at the top. If there was a plan to create that type of instability to lead to a warfare scenario, because as we've talked about before, if you want to change the opinions of the world and make something like a world government possible, you have to go through a period of warfare first yep. to make people beg for the solution. If they wanted to set off a war, that might be one possible way to do it. I, I don't see any indications that that is really being seriously considered, but, no, but again, I you never really know. But I'm talking about if North Korea did something really serious, not just hack into the Sony computers, but hack into Dancing with the Stars. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that might yeah. be enough where Obama or whoever is in office says, oh my gosh, the beasts have, they've cost us dancing with the stars. We're going to have to nuke them. I've got another article here from Associated Press. Russian ruble falls further as oil price tumbles. And they're complaining, oh my gosh, the Russian ruble is falling. That's not news precisely. Here's another one along the same uh, from Reuters headline, Russia's financial crisis may bury Putin's Eurasian dream. Now, if we can believe the media, the Russians are facing almost an economic collapse based on the falling price of oil and the increasing inflation that's afflicting the Russian ruble. Now, I'm not convinced that circumstances are as bleak in Russia as some of the media would suggest. And part of the reason for that is, here's another headline from Reuters, just from yesterday. It says the United, well, the, the headline is U.S. to back $2 billion loan, $2 billion in loan guarantees for Ukraine. <laughs> now, the United States plans to provide up to $2 billion in loan guarantees to Ukraine this year. The U.S. Treasury said on Tuesday, as part of a broader international package to stave off bankruptcy. Now, my point is while they're saying, oh, my gosh, Russia is in big trouble, big trouble, but we're going to have to kick in $2 billion to keep Ukraine from going bankrupt. Who's in more trouble right now, the Ukraine or Russia? I would say that Ukraine is in more immediate um, dire straits and has been for some time. I mean, that's what precipitated this whole crisis was the, uh, the, the point at which Ukraine was flailing about trying to, anyway, to cut a deal to, to cover its debts. And obviously that led to the whole 
Euromaidan and all, and we know the rest of that story. So I think Ukraine is in some desperate financial straits and does desperately require that funding to even sort of stopgap the government in the meantime. So they're definitely, I think, first on the, that sort of economic chopping block. But I'm not so skeptical about the idea that Russia is in serious uh, financial difficulties. I think certainly with the trend lines that they're on right now, the, the trend absolutely is towards economic devastation for, for the Russian economy. And this is right now, I mean, we have, for example, the uh, we, we had recently an interest rate hike by the Russian Central Bank as kind of an emergency maneuver to try to stop some of the uh, the capital that's flowing out of the country and try to stop up the uh, the ruble. That that worked for a little time, but now it's re-crashed, um, basically. Uh, and uh, and the, the, all they have really is they have some reserves that they can continue to uh, basically sell out, sell off in order to try to, again, stop, uh, stop up the ruble. But they can only continue to do so for a limited amount of time. I, I don't know. I don't have the numbers in, in front of me how many uh, how many dollars they have for, for their reserve uh, holdings. But it's uh, probably not enough um, if if they're just going to try to use that as a way of, of staving off this ruble collapse. And of course, this is all tied back to to the oil price, which I mean, we've talked about it a lot, and you've heard about it a lot. But that I mean, there's no way around it. The the, the falling oil price is a huge huge hit on the Russian economy, and. And again, whether or not that was intentional, I think it probably was, but whether or not it was intentional, it is having that effect right now. And as you noted, it is having knock-on effects on the ability of this Eurasian Economic Union to prosper in the way that I think Putin had envisioned it. And I actually just wrote about this in the forecaster last weekend uh, under the headline, Another Headache for Moscow. It's up on the internationalforecaster.com right now, where I talked about this Eurasian Economic Union, which for years, for years and years, Putin has been talking about, and uh, he said, this is a world historical moment and you know it's going to basically be a rival institution to the European Union and it's going to eventually one day stretch from Lisbon to Vladivostok and this kind of lofty rhetoric about this EEU um, but as I point out in that article uh, at this moment anyway it basically looks almost dead on arrival uh, it currently links Russia Kyrgyzstan Kazakhstan Tajikistan and uh Oh, sorry. No, I think I'm looking at the wrong list of nations there. Uh, it's in that block anyway. It's uh, it's floating around in that nexus. And I, I think our Armenia is or is about to become a member of this as well. But uh, but it's all of those nations are hurting right now because of the falling ruble and uh, and even such things as economic migration from Central Asia into Russia, which had been. Uh, quite common in, in recent years is now start starting to stop and even reverse to some extent uh, f uh, and economic uh, sending sending money back uh, to to nations from migrant workers is starting to to stop up so there is a, a significant problem happening right now in the Russian economy I think there's no two ways around that I think we'll take a break right now for some commercial announcements and then when we come back I'll have a couple more questions for James Corbett from the Corbett Report. Let's see if Frank is willing to start the commercials 30 seconds early. He is. Alright, we'll be back on Financial Survival in just a moment. Please stay tuned. future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? 
Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Folks, I'm Alfred Addisk, and this is Financial Survival. Our guest is James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. And we're talking, we've been talking a little about the significance of price of oil falling and how it's affected uh, Russia and perhaps created financial turmoil, turmoil over there. And I don't doubt that the falling price of oil has done harm. It just has to be because it's a big source of income for Russia. You cut anybody's income, they have a certain amount of suffering to go through or difficulty. But what disturbs me, confuses me, is the idea, we hear the reports that, oh my gosh, they're having serious inflation in Russia. Well, we've had quantitative easing for most of the time since 2008 in this country. And the whole idea behind quantitative easing was to cause enough inflation to prevent deflation. And everyone's been arguing in the currency wars in the world that they want to devalue their currency, that is to say, cause more inflation to affect the value of their currency, make their currency worth less, so their currencies are more competitive and they're Exports are more competitive on the world economic market. And everybody say, yeah, we want more inflation. We want more inflation. Russia's getting more inflation. Is the inflation hurting Russia, or is the inflation actually stimulating the Russian economy? But I think we have to differentiate a couple of things. I mean, obviously, the exporters want an, an inflated, devalued currencies. But people 
for example, people in Russia who are buying goods uh, that are, that have been imported with Russian rubles obviously want the ruble to be as strong as possible. So there are competing interests even within yep. each and every um, economy, and no difference there. The question is really consumer price index, consumer in inflation versus the, the type of inflation on the macrocosmic level, and whether or not the country is a net exporter or a net importer to try to find out you know which is going to be most beneficial for the country as a whole. But I would say that for the average Russian going about their daily business, I mean, to the extent that they do rely on imported goods, it's obviously going to be painful to have a crashing ruble. Um, and that's the same in, in all of these various countries where economists will talk about how, you know, I mean, it's great for the yen to be devalued because Japan is obviously a heavily exporter type nation. So isn't that great? But so much of the Japanese economy depends on imports, including imported energy, obviously, um, a lot of LNG. Uh, that's going to uh, increase in prices, the yen gets devalued, and that's going to hurt the average consumer as much as it does some of these corporations. So, again, there's always a balance to this, and I think for the average Russian, it, well, I mean, there's a, there's a there's an interesting question there because actually Russia has obviously levied some of its own reverse sanctions against various Western countries, so they're relying less on imported dairy and meat and, and some other products. So that might not actually be affecting them as much as they uh, as they're forced to source locally and buy locally. Um, but uh, which but, will create uh, any jobs. imported goods in theory yeah, will create yeah, exactly. jobs. There'll be other jobs that are going to be lost. But there's a question of balance here, and I'm yeah. wondering, you know, if inflation is so great that it was going to stimulate our economy, how is inflation not so good for the Russian economy? Right, right. And, yeah. and I think you always have to scrutinize who is saying that about inflation or deflation yeah, and what perspective they're coming from and what interests they're serving. Because, again, it's a mixed bag. Whenever there's inflation, there are winners and losers, and same with deflation. Yeah, that's exactly right. But one of the things that is true, from my perspective, when you have inflation, you pay off your debts with cheaper dollars. This is a fundamental motivation that virtually everyone who's ever taken out a mortgage has been assured that there will be inflation, and it seems like a lot of money now, but by the time you get toward the end of the mortgage, it'll only be a fraction. The dollars that you're paying on your mortgage will only be a fraction in terms of purchasing power of what the dollars are today. We're going to pay off our debts with cheaper dollars thanks to inflation, and what that means is we will legally rob our creditors. Borrowers are subsidized by inflation. The creditors, they take a loss. If we go into deflation, what's supposed to happen is the dollar becomes more valuable. Instead of paying off your debt with cheaper dollars, you pay off your debt with more expensive dollars, which is bad for borrowers, but it's great for creditors. Right? You would think that deflation is the reverse of inflation, but there's a problem. When you have deflation, you make it less likely that the borrowers will pay off their debts at all. Not, not a question, which means the creditors are again going to lose with a fiat currency. Mathematically, if you can sustain deflation, fine, the creditors would win and the borrowers would lose. But the borrowers are just going to quit and say, I can't pay that. Here, take yeah. the keys to the house. I'm out of here. Which means, which implies... That if you're using a fiat currency, it necessarily means that ultimately the creditors are going to be robbed, either by inflation or even by deflation. 
creditors get robbed. Does that make Very any important. sense? Yes, it does. And there's actually a few different things going on here. Not only do you have an increased risk of default in a deflationary environment where people mm-hmm. just can't keep up because their dollars are, are uh, the, 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 the debt is costing more, relatively speaking, but also, of course, you disincentivize people to borrow in the first place who are going to want to go into that long-term mortgage in an environment where they're expecting the, uh, the dollar to actually strengthen in the meantime. And then on top of that, I mean, there's the sort of macroeconomic effects, uh, generally speaking, who's going to want to spend money when just keeping it in the bank account might actually be better, it might be the best investment you can make in that deflationary envi- environment. So it actually slows down the economy as a whole, which obviously has knock-on effects, which causes the uh, the layoffs and then causes even further uh, decrease in spending, and, uh, and that becomes the deflationary cycle, which can become a deflationary depression like we saw in the 30s with the contraction mm-hmm. of the economy. So mm-hmm. this is, I mean, again, it's it, uh, you're right to point out this is the type of expectation that we haven't seen in a very long time. It, the expectation has always been geared towards inflation. We are now getting caught in that deflationary undertow, and it can have some huge effects on banking, on, on the economy in general, on every aspect of people's lives. And I think we're only starting to see some of those effects, one of which actually here's another shoe that uh, might drop more quickly than people are expecting. I'm, of course, from Calgary, Alberta in Canada, which is known as the Texas of the North because it has for a long time been centered very much on the oil industry and uh, has been home to the oil industry in Western Canada. And, of course, the tar sands has been the focus of a lot of that economic activity in the last several years, which has been enabled by oil prices over 70, 80, 90, 100 dollars a barrel, tar sands becomes a, uh, a profitable venture. Down at uh, under 50 dollars a barrel, definitely not so profitable, and yeah. if, if, if it's even sustainable at all. And as a result, what are we starting to see? But um, some very, well, some worrying signs for the, for the Albertan economy anyway. We see the Calgary Home Price Index has just dropped uh, its biggest two-month drop in the last two years, which on the big scheme of things may not seem like much when you look at the big long timeline, but if, uh, certainly if this is a trend that is related to decreasing oil prices that we can continue, we expect to continue, we could see a very sharp contraction, for example, in the Calgary home market. And this is worrying because this is part of a Canadian housing bubble that people have been pointing out for a few years now. But the experts, the uh, the credentialed expert talking heads on TV have been telling us, don't worry, it's going to slow down, but it'll be a slowdown. It'll be a nice soft uh, landing. It's not going to be a sharp, uh, short, sharp crash. Well, that's exactly what we could be looking at with these trend lines continue in this deflationary environment with oil prices dropping and the economy starting to contract. And uh, and if that starts to happen, we could see the Canadian banking sector, which a lot of people have talked about as having survived a lot of the uh, the craziness of what happened in the U.S. during the subprime crisis. We could see some of that starting to hit home. And there's an excellent article up on Zero Hedge right now, Canada Crude Contagion, Calgary Home Prices Drop Most in Two Years, that shows the household debt-to-income ratio of both Canada and the U.S. And it shows that in the U.S., we saw um, throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, that debt-to-income ratio increasing and increasing in, I believe, somewhere around 2002, 2003, it actually crossed over 100. So that meant over 100% people were more in debt than they actually had income. 
uh, in the United States. And that started to, to ease off in around the 2008 uh, crash. Obviously, people started to, to pay back some of their debts, and that went back down um, from its 120% high. In Canada, the line is pretty much continues straight up, and now household debt to income is now 160%. So Canadians are, are very, very much uh, finding themselves behind the eight ball when it comes to this. And as you say, I mean, deflationary environments are bad for, for debtors, uh, and Canada is... But they may even debt, be right? bad. They're bad for debtors, but if the debtor... They're good for creditors if the debtor pays the bill. Yeah. Exactly. But if the and, debtor and, says, I'm yeah. out of here, <laughs> then the creditors lose their capital again. Exactly right. And if house prices are, are decreasing and people find it harder to even sell their house, or if the uh, value of their home starts to uh, to go underwater, um, we could look at a very significant problem in, in Canada soon. And that might be one of the next shoes to drop. Who knows? Maybe the Cypress-style bail-ins might happen next in somewhere like Canada, which has uh, some systemic issues going on right now. Well, you know, when we stop to, th- or when I stop to think about it, we you realize, recognize, and remember that the dollar became a pure fiat currency in 1971 when Nixon closed the gold window, and soon after it became the petrodollar in that it was implicitly backed by petroleum products from the oil-producing nations. That establishes a relationship between the dollar and crude oil that is powerful and perhaps profound and it implies that if we want inflation for the dollar in order to limit to diminish our own debt and encourage people to go out and spend we have to have higher crude oil prices on the other hand if crude oil goes down the dollar is going up in terms of purchasing power because it's a petrol currency these aren't necessarily unrelated facts oh the dollar just happens to be going up amazingly almost at the same time the price of crude oil is falling that's consistent when with having a petrodollar at least at first glance to me do you do you think that's reasonable Oh, uh, of course, it's eminently reasonable, especially when you look at the fact that commodities prices are dropping across the board. Iron ore, uh, copper, all of these prices are dropping simultaneously. Well, it's because they're all being measured in dollars, and I think there has to be a a correlation between the strengthening of the dollar and the dropping of these commodity prices. Uh, That's at least one part of this equation. I think in the oil markets, it's more complicated than that, but that is one of the underlying factors in the exact same way that the, uh, the, the, the very loose monetary policy that we saw instituted with with Greenspan, for example, after 9-11 and uh, in the run-up to the 2008 bubble, we saw the run-up in oil prices as well. I think, again, we can see that uh, correlation there. The uh, the sort of easier, looser monetary policy, uh, the weaker the dollar, the higher the oil prices, the stronger the dollar, the fact that the uh, QE is coming to an end and everyone's expecting, at any rate, a lot of tightening in, in monetary policy means that commodity prices are dropping. So I think there's obviously a relation there. Let's take, we've got about three and a half minutes left on the program. Let's buzz over to Paris, and we've all heard about the publication, Charlie Hebdo, um, 12 people being shot and killed by Muslims. Do you think the Muslims have finally gone too far? Will this event precipitate a backlash against Muslims that is more profound than what we've seen in the past. 
uh, well, two different questions again. Um, I think the backlash is one question. Um, whether Muslims have gone too far is another question, because again, I, uh, being an eminently skeptical sort, remain open to uh, other alternative explanations of what happened in Paris. And I certainly don't just take anyone's word for the fact that the people who ended up being accused for this were the people that we saw in those videos ostensibly committing these acts. I, I, I'm just inherently skeptical of such things, and I think there are a lot of things regarding this that don't add up. The question of the backlash, I think, is altogether different, because obviously this has been placed squarely at the foot of this uh, uh, self-proclaimed al-Qaeda in uh, the Arabian Peninsula uh, fighters who supposedly committed this, and that's the general public's understanding of this. So I think obviously this is going to bring to a head the, uh, the tensions that absolutely are there and are simmering in a lot of uh, European nations right now. Um, and we see that across the board. I mean, we see calls now in, in Switzerland and other places to tighten uh, immigration from Muslim countries, uh, 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 ostensibly because of this incident. But obviously, I think these tensions have been going on for a very long time. So uh, I think that that is absolutely the train line. And it's uh, I mean, events like this, again, regardless of what actually happened or who was actually behind it. And for people who are interested in what could be an alternative explanation, I hope they will look into such things as Operation Gladio B and the idea of uh, staged NATO terrorist attacks, which, again, did, I mean, under Operation Gladio did take place. We now know that a lot of the uh, terrorist bombings, quote-unquote, in Italy in the 1970s that were blamed on communists were, in fact, uh, linked to NATO's Operation Gladio. Um, so, again, uh, there's a very important history that needs to be learned about the ways these attacks can be staged in order precisely the exact point of Operation Gladio in its original context, as, as we know, again, from the declassified documents, is to create a strategy of tension which increases people's, um, basically, hatred of each other and, and increases yep. the possibility of political saviors to kind of swoop down and do these ridiculous photo ops for freedom of speech, even as every single one of the participants in that rally, in one way or another, jails bloggers or journalists or threatens them in various ways uh, for speaking out against their own regimes. I mean, it's, it's hypocrisy at a grand scale, and hopefully the public is waking up to this. I see signs that more people are starting to question these narratives, but is it enough, or will this actually uh, result in, in the type of clash of civilizations as a self-fulfilling prophecy that uh, they've been talking about for decades now. Well, we, what, we're, what you're suggesting is that the real impetus behind the million people that marched in Paris was not necessarily an aversion to Muslims, but an aversion to immigrants at a time when they are not sure that they're going to have their jobs or their nation is going to be economically secure. So perhaps this is a reaction. Ah, oh, we're going to blame God. Get the Muslims. But maybe what they're really talking about are the immigrants, are the ones that are really making France and other countries anxious. And you got. 10 seconds to respond. Yeah, I, I'd say I think it's both. If there's a Venn diagram, you have Muslims and immigrants, and they overlap, and I think that's that's where people's attention are being directed, and there are a lot of issues to pick out there, so maybe we can pick it up again next week. We'll do it. All right, James, thanks very much for being on the program. This was James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. Take a look. I'm Alfred Addis. This is Financial Survival. I'll be back with Melody Manana. In the meantime, may the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank, the producer, and James Corbett. Good night. Still there never seems to be a single penny left for me.
political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010. Or online at thepowerherbs.com. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere 
with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water.
All right. Good uh, good evening. I almost said good afternoon. I ought to know better. Dark means evening. Light means afternoon. Okay. I got to remember that. Good evening. It is Wednesday, January 11, 2017. It's about seven minutes after 8 p.m., which makes it evening. Out here on the Pacific Time Coast, and uh, given the Pacific Time Coast, if that's uh, working out on the East Coast and wherever you're listening, then we're live, 800-932-1980. You can call and get on the air, 800-932-1980. Or you can go to the AmericanVoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com. But... uh and uh, and I should say, everything you need to know about this network is found on that website. Uh, go read the About page. We have an About page. It's actually more than just an About page. It's About Creed and Disclaimer page. That's a mouthful, huh? Well, anyway, so go read that, and that is everything you'll need to know about this network. Anyhow, you can also participate in the show by going to the chat room which is on that web page too eh, you don't have to though if you don't want to a lot of folks do want to but you don't have to you can talk about things like uh, cutting your own nails and uh, you know Vietnamese uh, nail cutters and <laughs> but anyway you, you want to know you'll have to go and find out for yourself okay anyhow it's all there TheAmericanVoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com, AVRN1.com or AVRN.TV. That's really the shortest one right there, AVRN.TV. Those of you who tried it, oh, I don't know, many, many, many moons ago, and it ended up taking you to a a video page. Well, that was then. This is now. It takes you to the main page. If you want to go to the video page, you got to go to the main page, and, uh, we do have that there, avrn.tv. You go there on the main page. You know, maybe I ought to rename it on the main page if it's going to be confusing to people and thinking, well, I already went there. I don't have to go there. It's totally different, so maybe I will uh, make it like video feed or something that will be more uh, conducive to people's understanding about what it actually is now that avrn.tv just points to the main page and i did that mainly because well it's just so short it's just so easy i mean you can't hardly not remember it you know avrn.tv it's very simple anywho and as far as nails go i don't even bother cutting my nails i just gnaw them off and and that's not to say that I'm a I'm a nail biter, because I really don't bite my nails like some people like they just it's a nervous thing and they just bite their nails until they they chew them down to where their fingers are bleeding. No, really, I've I've actually met actually several people that do that from a it's just a nervous thing. It's kind of like uh, you know uh, I don't know tapping your feet or something like that. Some people just bite their nails, but. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, when I see my nails getting too long, if they haven't already broke off, I just I just chew them off. Isn't that that that's a nice picture, huh? Anyhow, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just not into the pedicure and manicure thing, you know. So uh, I can just uh, rough it. <laughs> but speaking about roughing it, man, did you hear uh, America betrayed? 
They're roughing it in Mexico, that's for sure. And you know what? You're not hearing anything about it on the mainstream media. I know you're shocked. You're surprised. <laughs> How could that? Really? Yeah. But, uh, you know, they're lighting gas trucks on fire in the middle of town in the middle of the street. Oh, yeah, dumping the gas and lighting them on fire. You want to raise our price 20%, we'll show you. We'll burn this whole city down. Wow. All right, so something that is all over the news, and, you know, every time there's one of these shootings now, everybody has to be suspicious. Why? Well, because the government and the mainstream media has shown themselves to be untrustworthy, lying scumbags, okay? These are people that lie when they don't even have to lie. And by the way, folks, what do you think's going on in Mexico? Now, I, I had my opinion that I voiced on the show that I honestly think, because look, so Mexico is giving a 20% subsidy to gas. All right, so they decide somewhere along the line that, you know, this isn't good for us, uh, you know, we need to make more money, so we got to stop subsidizing this uh, gasoline. Okay. I mean, I get that. But uh, don't you think, and, and and again, I don't believe these people are stupid that are in charge. Not even the Mexican government. Okay? I don't think those people in charge of the Mexican government are stupid. And I think they would know that, hey, hmm. yeah, okay, we got to get rid of this 20% subsidy. But, uh, hey, what do you say we do it in a way that doesn't make everybody want to burn down the whole country? Unless, of course, it's your goal to want everybody to burn down the country. Hey, maybe they're not just average, everyday Mexicans out there. Oh, sure, maybe a lot of them are out there. You know, they figure, well, we'll get out here with signs and we'll protest and we'll let everybody know how unhappy we are. But maybe the ones grabbing the gas truck, okay, hijacking it, turning it on the gas in the middle of the street to run all down the street and then light it on fire, perhaps they're not the average, everyday Mexican. Maybe they're working for somebody else's agenda. Is this possible? I mean, if you were the Mexican government and you needed to say, well, we got to stop the subsidy, wouldn't you kind of say, well, I got an idea. Why don't we do like 5% every few months? You know, and then in a year, we'll have it done. Right? And, you know, maybe everybody won't notice. And if it, if they do, you know, say you do the first 5%, 5%, nobody cares. And then you do the second, everybody starts getting upset. Ooh, maybe not do the next, maybe wait a little longer to do the next one, right? Like I said, unless, of course, your goal is to cause riots. Now, why would the Mexican government want to cause riots? Well... The guest on John Clark's show told me there's 6 million people living, you know, right on the border on the Mexican side. And if there's no gas to be had, where do you think they're going to be headed? Oh, 6 million people headed across the border. Now, that would be something, huh? Uh, that might even be enough to call martial law, don't you think? 
Well, now, anyway, so we just go and say, well, you know, uh, here we have the United States trying to pick a fight with China. Okay? That didn't work. Because, well, we ran out of aircraft carriers, and China doesn't really care what we have to say out in the Pacific. Plus, we lost uh, the Philippines, and boy, that's working out great. Good job, Obama. Wow, let's see. You lost the Philippines, and you pissed off the Chinese, and probably we're going to get kicked out of Japan pretty soon, too. <laughs> this is great. You've done a good job. Way to go. But, you know, so China's not really buying any, you know, they're going, they're just saying, look, we're going to do what we want to do. We got our own aircraft carrier. And we got missiles that'll sink yours, so. Then, they're constantly trying to pick a fight with Russia over nothing. Now, now there's riots in Mexico because the Mexican government all of a sudden, right before the inauguration, decide, hey, I got an idea. Let's raise the price of gasoline 20%. Woohoo! Yeah! That, what could go wrong? Folks, I don't think it's rocket science to figure out somebody is trying to disrupt the inauguration. Somebody is trying to create a situation where they can think they can justify postponing the inauguration. But I'm telling you, if that happens, it's war. There, I'm sorry, there is no provision in the Constitution for that. I don't care if the whole country's on fire. The inauguration should take place on the 20th, just like it's scheduled, and we need a new president. We needed a new president eight and a half years ago. So uh, don't get fooled, folks, into thinking, oh, this is all just a big oops, oh, gee, golly, what a what a surprise, uh, gee, uh, you know. And no, I don't believe the Mexican government's just sitting back and waiting and hoping the people kind of get over it. No, I don't think so. I think they're hoping they don't get over it. I think the Mexican government is working with the Soros group, the same bunch of CIA spooks that are trying to instigate Russia into a war with the United States. I think they're the same group down in Mexico because they're getting desperate. They're figuring out, hey, man, Putin ain't going along with this crap. Gee golly, he's smarter than that. So off to the Mexican government, which really doesn't have much of a choice. They're going to do as they're told. Because I'm, I'm going to tell you a little secret that I learned when I first went in the Army. Mexican machismo is all just BS. You meet some Mexican with machismo, all he needs is his nose broken, and he'll calm down pretty quick. And you'll find out that if you're just, a, you know, unless you're a snowflake or something, it's really not all that difficult. It's not that big of a deal. You're really not in that much danger. I met a Mexican guy in basic training from Texas who, he came to my locker and threatened me with a, a, a shaving razor. Not, not a straight razor. See, now that would have been, well, okay, you could probably cut me up pretty good with that. No, no, I'm talking about one of those double-edged razors that you used to, like, you know, uh, like spin the thing and the 
top would open up and and then you'd stick your razor in there and then you'd shut it back down and that one of those yeah holding it between his thumb and forefinger says I'll cut you <laughs> yeah how do you think that worked out I did a lot of push-ups over that little incident but I'll tell you it it, it I didn't get cut and I wasn't really all that afraid of a little razor either. I mean, that's why when, you know, I, I mean, because, okay, look, things like this happen in people's lives, right? Somebody comes to you with a little razor and says, I'm going to cut you. And you just, you know, basically knock them out and that's the end of that, right? And it's like, okay. Then you hear this story in 2001. Okay, yeah, three guys with box cutters. <laughs> they they hijacked an airplane and ran it into a building. Oh, really? With a box cutter, huh? Well, hey, guess what? A box cutter is just a little razor, man. Are you kidding me? Really? See, I never believed it. The minute they said that, I'm like, okay, this, 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 really? Oh, no, no. Well, we better just sit here and go into the building because, well, he's got a, he, he has a box cutter. Don't you see? Oh, I hate to make light of it, but I mean, you know, because there were a lot of people that did die, but I, I just don't like being uh, lied to. I, I just really don't like it, and I think it's happening again. Well, we're still, yeah, still, it's still happening, that's it. All right, how about some three weird things about the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting? Want to hear this? Of course you do, because weird things are always fun, Right? Okay, so weird thing number one. Santiago eh, turned himself into the FBI in November, saying he was a victim of government mind control. Okay. Santiago, a U.S. veteran, you know, and I'm wondering if Santiago is one of these individuals that have been given... United States citizenship based on his uh, joining up in the military. Just wondering. He was under psychiatric care because he was hearing voices last November. He tried to turn himself into the FBI in Anchorage, Alaska, where he lived. Huh. Okay, so... In November 2016, Esteban Santiago walked into the Anchorage FBI field office to report that his mind was being controlled by a U.S. intelligence agency. A senior federal law enforcement official said. During the interview, Santiago appeared agitated and incoherent and made disjointed statements. Although Santiago stated that he did not wish to harm anyone as a result of his erratic behavior, interviewing agents contacted local authorities who took custody of Santiago and transported him to a local medical facility for evaluation. The FBI closed its assessment of Santiago after conducting database reviews, interagency checks, and interviews with his family members. Yeah, no problems here. Sure, you know, U.S. veteran hearing voices, incoherent, says he's mind control. Ah, what that? What could go wrong? Nothing here. We're the FBI. We know best. Let him go. Bye bye. <laughs> oh boy, you know, 
it's almost everything I read. The FBI looks worse and worse and worse and worse every stinking day. It's amazing. Geez, if that doesn't sound like something right out of the conspiracy theorist's official handbook, I don't know what is. But then there's weird thing number two. You know, at least one bystander reported multiple shooters. Isn't that the case at most of these lone gunman shooter shootings that the first reports, there's always more, and then all of a sudden, oh, no, they were mistaken, that was wrong, there was only one, and he's dead. Well, this one's not dead yet, anyhow. Now, keep in mind that eyewitnesses to high-stress events are notoriously unreliable. However, it's interesting to note that one man who allegedly... Uh, was allegedly pre- present during the attack, reported that Santiago was not acting alone. Moreover, an eyewitness to the actual event maintains that after they caught the first guy, there had to be three sleepers, three other shooters. That's in quotes. Here's more quote. We could see inside, literally where the windows you could see the fire coming from the barrels. Barrels. There was like at least three people in there still shooting. Like it was a high-powered rifle, like an AR or something. Mm-hmm. Always like an AR or something, right? I mean, come on, really? Uh, they was nonstop shooting. Like they just started hitting different people inside the crowd. We had to leave. We had to get on the roof. Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel said that despite initial reports, there were not multiple shooters. We don't care what anybody says. We don't care what anybody saw. We're telling you there was no other shooters. It was Lee Harvey Oswald, and you better believe it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. Weird thing number three. This incident was conveniently timed right before a discussion on a pro-gun bill that would allow firearms at airports. Wow, that is a coincidence, isn't it? And if all this is not strange enough, there's one more thing, and this is the part that sent up red flag for me. Yep, there's current re- uh, legislation on the table in the state of Florida to allow guns in airport terminals. The state legislature was due to meet next week to discuss the bill. Huh. Well, if you want to care, if you want to kill as many people as possible before the cops arrive, then you are likely to go to a place where law-abiding citizens can't carry. Argued Stuvi, the committee chairman. That's what we've seen time and time again, and why I think we shouldn't have them. Meaning, I guess, uh, no no uh, gun zones. But, you know, just something else to think about, folks. You know, there's weird things. There's strange stuff going on with all these things. And none of them seem to completely add up. Now, there's some things that do. You know, it's like, okay, well, this makes sense. That makes sense. This seems real. And then, doing, doing, doing. Wait a minute. That's weird. What, what in this picture doesn't belong? There always seems to be that moment with all these mass shootings. Wonder why that is. But we'll have to wonder about that some other time because we got a caller. Go ahead, caller. Well, you know, I was just wondering about that, Frank. Why do you keep calling here? Well, 
because I have a Jeff Sessions update, and it actually connects to what you just were talking about, Kennedy. Kennedy? Because 30 years from 1962 is when they will officially start putting in all the gun detectors in the airports. Ah, I see. And so that's well, what people don't realize is that was part of the omnibus crime bill to actually, like you said, get rid of all the guns from citizens so that basically they could bill for looking for the guns. Because if everybody in the airport had a gun, you'd simply check it in the luggage like the guy from Alaska. Well, and that's the whole point about all this nonsense about, well, we need this and we need that. We need... Hey, this wasn't somebody walking into the airport with a gun. This was a guy who put it in his luggage. Now, I have not flown in close to 10 years, but even 10 years ago, when I had luggage, now this is the check-in luggage that goes under the plane, it got x-rayed. Are you telling me that, what, did they stop doing that? No, he checked his gun in the airport. Oh, okay. So they knew he had a gun? Yep. Okay, so this is a guy who told the police in Alaska and the FBI that he's hearing voices, he's under mind control, and was mentally evaluated, and he was still allowed to check a gun into the airport. Okay. And now, one word on which pipeline he worked on. Well, I don't know. Because he's from the islands. Okay. And people from the islands don't go to work in Alaska. <laughs> not generally. Because they hate the cold, because they're not used to it. So this man was probably, you know, they, they are, many of these guys are drug addicts, but the big thing about Jeff Sessions today, I don't know if you saw any of the testimonies he gave, but directly behind him was Michael Mukasey, my favorite U.S. attorney and judge in Blakely v. Wells when the special ed kids were uh, slaves in the, in the bottom of Trump Towers. Now... Mukasey testifies for Sessions. And, you know, when I first saw it, I said, is that, is that Mukasey in the, right behind um, Sessions? And so when they started putting out videos of Sessions, they were cropping Mukasey out of it. Oh, really? He, he was sitting directly looking at the television, directly to the right of Sessions. So he would have been over Sessions' left shoulder. So he would have been on the right side of the television screen. So when my friend sent me a, a video clip, I, I'm a video editor. The moment I, I said, where's, they, they had totally cropped Mukasey out. Now I said to myself all day, I was really pissed. And I said, you know what? That was the smartest thing Session could have done. Because Mukasey was the man who brought in all the drugs at the U.S. Attorney's Office under Giuliani, total mob out of the Bronx, okay, Mukasey, with Giuliani. Uh, it was under Patterson. Old man Patterson was the, the big drug dealer at the time, Judge Patterson. But think about it. 
Mukasey covered for Madoff. In fact, Mukasey's son will defend Peter Madoff. So Mukasey and Giuliani and Bloomberg all knew that this Massachusetts Ponzi scheme was going down, robbing all the probate courts. So who better to shut Chuck Schumer up than to have his bag man testify and sit right behind him? So that Chuck Schumer couldn't say one word. <laughs> and I said to myself, you know, that's one slick southern cookie. So was uh, was old Chucky pretty quiet? We didn't hear a pin drop from Chuck Schumer today or yesterday. And that guy, Cory Booker. Oh, God. Yeah. He's the New Jersey mob. Yeah, well, he ran Newark, New Jersey, further into the ground than it had been. But he wouldn't have got there unless the Newark mob wanted him there. And there were always rumors he was with the mob. And he was with the motto. And and all the guys that, all the Hasidim, or the Orthodox Jews that run the properties right next to the Meadowlands, which was the problem with Bridgegate. Because they wanted to develop all that property. And fat man, what's his name? Chris Crispy wouldn't wouldn't allow them. <laughs> Chris Crispy. <laughs> All right. <That's> funny. <laughs> Sorry, I used to like the guy. I still like the guy because he's probably one of the few people that could have stood up against Mukasey. So Jeff Sessions is really interesting now. So he's made a horse trade with Chuck Schumer. Sounds more like he's playing kind of hardball with Chucky. You say something, you see this guy? You know this guy, right, Chuck? <laughs> but then he has Mukasey testify for him. So he's holding Mukasey in a headlock. So it's just like, holy well, shit. Well, you know, Sessions didn't just fall off the turnip truck yesterday, okay? He's been at this a while. Oh, don't piss on me and tell me it's raining. That was a little joke from Judge Judy about golden rain showers. Okay. And so I won't say any more, but you do know that we were the first ones to bring up the sex tape. Yeah. You brought it up. You brought it up when you said for Melania to get her butt down to D.C. You said that. That was you. But regardless of who it was, I have to to take a break. And thanks for calling, Dean. We'll see you next Monday. Okay, I'll be looking for the tape. All right. Okay, folks, here it comes. So I guess all this all this gun banter has brought on this next song.
just defended yourself with a gun. The police are called and you're potentially involved in a homicide, but it was self-defense. At this point, you are not in your right mind. No one ever is when they are in fear for their life and defend themselves. Anything you say can will be used in a court of law, both civilly and criminally. Fortunately, you have SelfDefenseFund.com. We are the National Association for Legal Gun Defense, and we protect our members nationally in all 50 states, up to $1 million per incident per member. Let us do the talking for you and visit SelfDefenseFund.com. Any weapon, any state, any time. about where your next meal will come from if the power is out for an extended period of time? I'd like to suggest Numana Foods, a family-owned business with a passion for food quality and taste, as well as long-term storage reliability. Numana.com. Check them out for your family's health and security. Food so good tasting and good for you, it can be eaten every day. 
standard buckets are GMO-free, contain no aspartame, high fructose corn syrup, autolyzed yeast extract, chemical preservatives, or soy. You can be confident your Numana meals will be there for you and your family when you need them during an emergency. Numana.com, a nutritionally healthy way to prepare for any disaster. That's Numana.com, N-U-M-A-N-N-A.com.
This is the American Voice Radio Network, and you're listening to The Frank Report. It's Wednesday, January 11, 2017. It's about 844 out here on the Pacific Time Coast, 800-932-1980 is the call-in number. TheAmericanVoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com, AVRN.TV, okay? Anyhow, we got a chat room there. And you can hear you you can read some very sad stories in in there about misgotten youth. Yes, it's it's I'm 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 holding back the tears as I speak. Uh, anyhow, let me get to um, let me get to uh, some stuff here. You're gonna like this. Not you're really not gonna like this, but oh well, you know. I I I've, I've mentioned this before. I do not understand what what Arizona's thinking. But, uh, yeah, John McCain, sworn Donald Trump enemy John McCain, admitted Wednesday that he passed the dossier of claims of a Russian blackmail plot against the president-elect, calling it what any citizen should do. Wait a minute, dirtbag scum liar. Really? What any citizen should do? Leaked BS hoax? Pass on to the FBI, that's what we should be doing? Really? Johnny? Is that right? I should be passing on unsubstantiated hoaxes to the FBI? Well, gee, I didn't get the memo. But wait a minute. Of course, he didn't know that because he's stupid. But, and I do believe John McCain is stupid. And I mean stupid, like dumb, okay? He got put in his position because his daddy was an admiral. That's the only reason he sits where he sits. And then, of course, he married a mafia princess after he dumped his loyal wife who waited for his worthless behind to come back from Vietnam. After she got in a car wreck, he dumped her like like an old newspaper in a birdcage so he could go marry some prostitute. Oh, did I say prostitute? I didn't mean that. I meant mafia queen, okay? In Arizona. That's John McCain. Oh, and there's more. Much, much more. This guy is a dirtbag forever. But now he's at it again. Okay? Like anybody else would do, really? Isn't this the guy that says uh, that Snowden should be imprisoned? He should go to jail? Well, didn't he just do what any other citizen ought to do? Oh, no, wait. We're not supposed to pass out this information so the public can see it. We're supposed to give it to the FBI. I gotcha. Man, I'll tell you what. This guy is a this guy is a piece of work. Okay? 
A real piece of work. But now he's got crap all over his face, and it ain't coming off anytime soon. Now, how did it happen? Huh? Now, there's a lot to go through with this story, and it can get confusing. But I found something that makes it very simple, very easy, and it's actually accurate, because I did read the whole thing. And, uh, yeah, it goes on and on, but this is accurate. And it's simplified so people can actually understand it quickly. Now, this is going to end up being one of the biggest embarrassments for BuzzFeed, the CIA, and that old scumbag John McCain. Let's, let's go through what happened. Okay? First, Anonymous, pretending to be anti-Trump, he feeds false information to Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson is a GOP consultant, neocon, and a never-Trump, you know, Twitter troll. Rick Wilson has extremely close ties to Evan McMullen. Evan McMullen is an ex-intelligence official, neocon, never-Trump uh, troll, and a Russia-phobe. Okay, this guy is anti-Russian. So, the ex-intelligence official gives the dossier to John McCain. Oh, okay. John McCain is a neocon little piece of garbage, anti-Trump, anti-Russia, you know, uh, you know pro-mafia. Jeez, uh, I got things to say that I can't say on the radio. Now, John McCain gives the dossier to intelligence agencies, and the intelligence agency, gee, someone there leaks the bizarre dossier to BuzzFeed, they publish it, and the mainstream media goes to town on it. I know, it sounds crazy, but it's all verifiable. The neocon shill of a reporter from BuzzFeed, Rick Wilson, was catfished by some Autist from the Hitler-loving 4chan message boards and made to believe Trump enjoyed getting urinated on and all sorts of outlandish stuff. Truly, this is incredible. But this guy here has all the screenshots and everything to back it all up. So that's, that's the summary of what happened. And now you see what an idiot John McCain is. And we also get to see the intelligence agencies. Ah! Well, I'll tell you what, let, let, let's go there a little bit, because, uh, oh, where is this one? Okay, I got a lot of stuff on my deals here, I gotta find the right one. Uh, no, not that one. Uh, no, not that one. Uh, let's see, here we go. ha, ha, ha. All right. Donald Trump conducts his own sting operation to ensnare intelligence briefers and says he caught them leaking. That's right. Look, Donald Trump is not stupid. And I don't think the people he's dealing with are stupid either. But what they are is they are desperate. They are scared and they are worried. Because there's a new faction coming to town. 
And this faction ain't the Kennedy faction, naive couple of little punk brothers coming to town thinking, la, 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 we won the election, we're in Camelot, everything's going to be great, bang, 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 you're all dead now, and here comes Lyndon B. Johnson, all right? That was the end of that. Well, I think the boys from the other faction have learned a little bit from that little adventure and figured out, oh, if there's going to be any bang, bang, banging, it's going to be, you're going to be dead. You know, I mean, little things like Trump saying, I'm keeping my own private security force. Hmm, I wonder why. Perhaps he doesn't trust the Secret Service president murdering agency. Hmm? Well, President-elect Donald Trump described a sting operation he says he conducted after becoming infuriated by a series of leaks about his own classified briefings. He says he decided to tell no one about one particular secret briefing. Because, you know, President-elect gets all these secret briefings that it's like, you know, a lot of people, yeah, yeah, okay, we got little green men in cages down in the Area 51 and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all the stuff that you don't get to know until you're actually, you know, going to be president. He even didn't tell his longtime scheduling aide, Rhonda. Because he wanted to rule out the possibility that the leaks were coming from his staff. Now, that's pretty smart, isn't it? I'm going to this thing. I'm not telling anybody. I'm not telling anybody on my staff at all. So they can't leak it because they don't know. So he goes to this thing. And word got out anyway. So Trump concluded it was the intelligence community who was putting out or leaking the information to the press. He described the operation he conducted after suggesting intelligence officials leaked a fake, dirty dossier of information about him. I'll tell you what, uh, President-elect Donald Trump, after growing suspicious that the intelligence officials were leaking news about their classified briefings, uh, you know, this is something that, (laughs) you know, these dirtbags like McCain... And Schumer saying that, oh, you know, it isn't good, it isn't right that the president-elect be criticizing the intelligence community. Listen, man, the intelligence community is nothing but the New World Order communist, worldwide revolutionaries that have infiltrated our government. That's what the intelligence agencies are folks, and they always have been, along with the State Department, riddled with un-American enemies of the American people. This didn't just happen with Obama, so I'm not, you know, I'm not throwing this all on Obama's plate, but he knew about it, and he's part of it, but this has been a long time this has been happening. Kennedy knew about it. Kennedy said he was going to Bust the CIA into a thousand pieces. Well, gee golly, how do they react when you tell them that? Well, they kill you. That's how they react. These are the guys that overthrow governments. They don't care about killing people. And they don't care who you are. So you better realize that and kill them first. That's that's the way I look at it. And I sure hope Donald Trump has this in his head. I think he might, though, given the fact that he has surrounded himself in his cabinet with quite a few generals. And I like the idea of being surrounded by a general that his nickname is Mad Dog. 
Okay? I kind of like that. You know, I mean, because look, if I'm going to be the commander-in-chief, those are the generals I want around me, the ones named Mad Dog. Okay? Now, I don't want to go fight against somebody named Mad Dog. That's kind of scary. But, hey, that's the guy you want on your side. So, I think Trump's on to something here. But, folks, do you see what's going on? Do you see how bad this is? Now, I'm not saying, look, Donald Trump is as pure as the driven snow and he would never do such a thing. I don't know that. Maybe he likes to pee in the bed. Who knows? But the thing is, what does that have to do with anything? It isn't so... Look, if that's true, then why doesn't somebody just get out there, show us the picture, show us the thing... Say, Donald Trump, what is this? What's going on here? Well, they don't. They're not. Why not? Because it's all a fraud. They're making it all up. These guys got punked. Okay? These guys got punked is what they got with this story. Punked by a couple of hackers. Boy, how embarrassing for the uh, U.S. intelligence agency. Obama is preparing this a sneak attack on Trump. It's not much of a sneak attack if we all know about it, though. And, uh, you know. <laughs> but what Obama's doing is setting up his organization. Oh, yeah. Already, former aides are revamping, organizing for action. The group formed out of his old campaign structure. Yeah, well, no longer about backing up Obama's agenda in the White House. It will be a nexus for training activists, communist agitators, and candidate recruitment. Okay. Recruiting communists. Reshaped. This is this is Obama's old game, man. He was a community organizer. Uh, let me translate that to you. Communist agitator. Okay? That's what community organizer means. Though OFA has been mostly quiet over the last two months and made no formal announcements, its Chicago headquarters are filling up with new hires, including several old campaign aides who are planning to focus on the mechanics of campaigns from running Obama-style persuasion programs, integrating data, and running paid canvassing operations. So Obama's going to be running an organization against the President of the United States. Uh, Folks, somewhere along the line, you cross the line, okay? An ex-president who is disgraced. You know, what? okay, what Trump needs to do to shut this pile of crap down is to arrest Barack Obama. Put him in a jail cell and try him for treason. And if you can't try him for treason, which I don't know why you wouldn't be able to. Heck, I could build a case against the guy for treason that should make him swing. But one thing I know for a fact that is undeniable that you could prosecute him for is perjury of oath. He took an oath to faithfully execute the laws of the United States, and then he wrote executive orders directing agencies of the United States to disregard the law of the land. Folks, you didn't get any clearer that the man 
violated his oath of office. Perjury of oath. Arrest him. Try him. Jail him. That ought to put a little crink in his plans for, uh, you know, screwing with America some more. Uh, you know, I, I really hope he does, man. But somebody really ought to take U.S. Director of National Intelligence, James, I got the clapper, uh, aside for a talk. He desperately needs to be told that when uh, you're in a deep hole, the first step toward getting out, yeah, stop digging. Not him, though. He's been in a hole since 2013 when he caught when he got caught lying to Congress about the National Security Agency's surveillance and surveillance of and data collection on Americans. Oops. Then on January 6th, he fired up the backhoe and dug himself six feet deeper when his office issued a report on alleged Russian hacking in re- relation to the 2016 U.S. presidential election, which is all fraud. You know, and now they've got this, uh, you know, pee in the bed thing that is all just, uh, they got spoofed by a hacker. Oh, man. You know, hey, look, I could get spoofed by a hacker, too. I'm not immune to that. I'm not all that bright. I That could happen to me. But then again, I'm not a trillion-dollar uh, intelligence agency either, am I now? You you know you expect a little more for that you know for, from them don't you? Anyway, I gotta go. I'm out of time. As always, thanks for listening. religious and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. Carl Miller is an expert on the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights. He has studied law for over 25 years and has a courtroom win-loss rate of over 90%. He is not an attorney. Carl prefers representing himself in propria persona as he delights in tying federal prosecutors in knots, often winning the praise and respect of the judges at the same time. Carl is a highly decorated hero of the Vietnam War, serving in the elite Apache troop as a paratrooper and crew chief. The famous movie, Apocalypse Now, and the best-selling book, Apache Sunrise, are based on the true-life experiences of this group of brave and patriotic Americans. Carl Miller was inducted into the top-secret project Blue Book, and he considers it an honor to have served in several operations supporting Lieutenant Colonel James Bogreitz, including Operation Eagle Snatch. 
Carl is a veteran of hundreds of dangerous parachute jumps, breaking his legs or ankles six times. Shot down four times, personally shot twice, Carl has miraculously escaped death numerous times. Carl credits divine intervention and God's providence for preserving his life unto this day so he may complete the most important mission of his life, that of teaching others the importance of the Constitution of the United States and how to use it, and by using it, thus preserving it. Carl has taught hundreds of people, including housewives and truck drivers, the fine art of arguing the Constitution and winning in court. Carl says it's easy once you know how, and a whole lot of fun, too. Good evening, folks. I want to thank you for inviting me into your home tonight to talk to you about an extremely important issue to you. I, I basically uh, uh, am here to talk about the United States Constitution and our government and uh, some of the principles that uh, you need to understand most thoroughly so that you can have an effective opportunity to exercise your constitutional rights. The whole purpose of this is that you understand that these these rights come from God, okay, that they are God-inspired. God is the one who, who endowed us with these rights, and that this Constitution merely uh, offers a legitimate program to protect those rights or to secure those rights and the blessings of those rights on ourselves and on our children for all time. It's important that you understand that the Constitution is uh, God-inspired. It's important that you understand that a lot of the principles that are in the Constitution actually come out of the Holy Bible, okay? And it's very important that you understand that this Constitution allows each of you each to be a king or queen in your own right, as long as you recognize one principle, that you don't ever create a situation where you take away the rights of another. So the whole point of, of having the Constitution is so that all of us can have the rights equally, and, and, and as long as we respect our neighbor and allow them also to have the rights equally, the, the, the protections are, are, are going to last forever. And, and the reality is that... We are going to get thoroughly into your Constitution. We want you to find a Constitution wherever you can, and we are going to basically take you step by step through some of the most important parts of this Constitution so that you can better exercise your rights in a timely fashion. Now, the facts are simple. If you don't know your rights, you don't have any rights, and that's just the way it is. And if you certainly couldn't exercise those rights timely if you don't know what they are, so what's going to happen is they're going to tell you what your rights are, and do you think they're going to tell you in your favor? Certainly not. Now... We've come a long way to put this program on to help you. By the way, my name is Carl Miller. I want to thank you again for inviting me into your home. We're going to proceed with vigor. Uh, I should tell you a few things about me, that I'm a prior service soldier. I served three combat tours Republic of Vietnam. I should tell you that I was a participant in the top secret project called Blue Book, where the officers in the jungle smelled a rat in a woodpile, and they decided to pull their, their top soldiers aside. And they come on over here. Let's come on over here. We want to talk to you. And they took their top soldiers in the corner, and they started teaching them things like duty, honor, country, pride in the corps. They taught us history. They taught us all kind of uh, programming as far as what's going on in our government. They taught us the Constitution. We had to be able to rattle the Constitution off just like we would any manual of arms. And this all took place to totally top secret so that we wouldn't offend any uh, chains of command or any uh, presidential problems similar to what... Uh, happened between General MacArthur. Yeah, the bottom line is uh, 
this was taken totally uh, upon their own, shall we say, careers to pull this thing off. And uh, they, this happened all throughout a lot of the military services in Vietnam. Uh, Marine Corps, Air Force, Army, we all they all pulled aside their best people and they started putting everything on and teaching us our Constitution. So I'm going to try and instill in you that flame that was instilled in me over 25 years ago, in which I have been I have been transferring ever since. I have been fighting tooth and nail to defend the Constitution. I have helped thousands and thousands and thousands of other people do the same. I teach people how to be their own counsel, to stand up in courts of law, and be able to exercise their constitutional rights in a timely and effective manner. And uh, the good Lord willing, I'll be able to keep doing that. So why don't we uh, right now try and get into some parts of the Constitution. The most important thing that I can teach you about this Constitution is the importance of reading it. You must read the Constitution and understand what physically is involved. You must know your rights and timely assert them. That is your burden. If you do not, then a legal term called latches incurs is in full force. Latches is a legal term which is defined as an as a Latches is a species of action wherein a party of reasonable intelligence and integrity, having a right to take an action as is prescribed by law and having failed to timely do so, loses all right to proceed. So what is actually happening out there, folks, is that latches is incurring because most people don't read their constitution and know what's involved. So then you are left to being told, well, that's what it means. Okay, so you just got to do what you got to do and you're told and, and they're going to tell you in favor of them. They're not going to tell you in favor of you. So it's better for you to read the book and understand what's in it. It's not a very big book. I, I highly recommend the book. I, you can get several versions. Uh, a lot of times you contact your congressman. Uh, my congressman, Dominic Vincentini, uh, state senator, supplied this one for me. Uh, John Kuhn, a libertarian candidate, has supplied several also. Uh, some of these folks, uh, just check with your local uh, congressman or state rep, uh, a lot of times you can they'll just give you one. If you cannot find one, go down to your United States uh, government building here in the Detroit vicinity. We, it's called the McNamara Building on the first floor. And uh, what we do then is we uh, go into the government printing office, and usually they're about a buck. But I highly recommend you go get one. I, I don't leave home without mine. I usually have three or four of them someplace. And I hand them out also myself. I give them out to whoever. I, I think one of the most kindest things I can do to a person is give them this book and show them how it works. This book is kind of like a genie in a bottle. If you know how to stroke this book, I'm telling you, the genie comes out. And it usually with a force that, that you it will be clearly recognized in any court in the land. Now that doesn't mean it'll be easy. You might have to work a little bit. But basically there's an argument, and it comes like this. If I violate your rights, you may or may not know about it. If you know about it, you may or may not be able to do something about it. If you do have an ability to do something about it, you may or may not have the financial wherewithal to, to go to a finished program. If you do have the, the financial wherewithal, you may not have the intestinal fortitude to go to a finished program. So most of the time, your governments and your, your abusive uh, personalities in government or your corporations uh, pretty much have carte blanche to, to injure you. Because in 99.9% .9 of the cases, nobody, most people will not proceed. But every now and then, you run into that one hard nut, and he doesn't quit or she doesn't quit till the cows come home. And what happens is that person will prevail. And those are the people that are actually generating 
better protections and better constitutional rights for you. Those are the ones that are going to the Supreme Courts and the Courts of Appeals and what have you that are pushing, that are spending their life funds to allow you to have the benefit. But if you aren't there to catch the benefit, then you, you the benefit is lost. So we're going to get right into the Constitution. We're going to teach you some things about it. Pay attention because we're really doing this out of an act of love for you, and we're hoping to God you're going to pick up on it and pay attention. Okay, now. I'm going to put one constitution down here so the folks can see it. I will open this up from time to time to demonstrate things to you. I will basically try and read out of another constitution so that we can better show you some of the things that are involved. Now, it's important that you understand that this constitution is in writing. It's important that you understand that it is a legal document, okay, that it was ratified by all of the members in a Congress together, right? And that that document can be, you can get all the signatures on the document. Okay? And it's important that you understand that there was an offer, government offered to govern. There was a consideration. The citizens considered how they were going to be governed. And government promised that they would govern by Constitution. And there was an agreement. The citizens agreed that if government promised there would be a government by Constitution, that they would agree to allow the Constitution into force. Now, there's a unique situation here. It's very rare when you find the party of the first part, which is the congressmen, officers of the government, who are also parties of the second part as representatives of we the people, the republic. And when they signed the document, they signed the document as officers of government, agreeing to the Constitution, and simultaneously as officers of representatives of the people in the republican form of government. And when they signed that document, that constituted a ironclad contract in writing enforceable in court of law pursuant to the statute of frauds. Here in the state of Michigan, that's 566.132, Michigan Compiled Laws Act, which basically states anything in writing is enforceable in the court of law pursuant to the statute of frauds. Now, all we're asking is that they enforce the contract. We want them to enforce the contract. In other words, if we read something in here and we got a good reason for why we believe it's the way it is, then they should honor that. And they should honor it in favor of you, the clearly intended and explicitly designated beneficiary, but I'll get into that a little later. The program that you should understand, especially, is Article 6, Paragraph 2 of the Constitution. This is called the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution. It's located at Article 6. Everybody see that? Paragraph 2, which is going to start right here, and I'm going to read it to you, okay? And basically what it says is this, this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and the treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary or notwithstanding. When they say notwithstanding, that means notwithstanding in law. That means that's a legal definition. Notwithstanding means notwithstanding in law. Now, a very important case, Marbury versus Madison, 5 U.S. 137. Pardon my reaching here. Marbury versus Madison, 5 U.S. 137. It's recorded at volume 5, 
Right here. It's an 1803 case, Marbury versus Madison. It's recorded in volume five, page 137. Now basically what this case states, and, and I'm telling you right now, if you want to use a case to cite for any purpose in court, you have to read the case. If you haven't read the case, you haven't read the case and formed a basis upon which a logical determination in your mind could have been reached to form an opinion as to why you should do what you're going to do, then the judge will throw your case out. So read your cases. Don't just quote cases because that won't, you won't win. If the judge ever pins you down and starts asking you some merits of the case and you can't even understand what the case is about, nine times out of ten, he's just going to throw your case in the, in, the, in the can. So make sure you read the case. This is one of the leading cases in the history of the United States of America. The opinion of the court was given by the Honorable Judge John Marshall, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. His opinion was, anything that is in conflict is null and void of law. Clearly, he said that for a secondary law to come in conflict with the Supreme Law was illogical. For certainly the Supreme Law would prevail over all other law. And certainly our forefathers had intended that the Supreme Law would be the basis of all law. And for any law to come in conflict would be null and void of law. It would bear no power to enforce. It would bear no obligation to obey. It would purport to settle as if it never existed. For unconstitutionality would date from the enactment of such a law, not from the date so branded in an open court of law. No courts are bound to uphold it, and no citizens are bound to obey it. It operates as a mere nullity or a fiction of law, which means it doesn't exist in law. Now let me give you an example in today's timing as to how effective this is. This argument is so effective that it literally nullifies the Brady Bill. It nullifies the crime bill that takes away the right of the people to keep and bear arms on these 19 weapons that turn into 159 weapons. It uh, stops this 666 bill that just went through that they're trying to take away the Fourth Amendment. You see, because they have no power to pass a law that's in conflict with the United States Constitution. And it's automatically null and void of law from its inception, not from the date you go to court and brand it as unconstitutional. Now, I want to get that real clear. A lot of people think that they got to go to court and brand it unconstitutional. I'm here to tell you, if you know your arguments and you can show your arguments, most of the time you will win. Every now and then you run into a hard nose, but I'll show you how to deal with him too, okay? But for now, I want everybody that's got a chance to go out to learn your Constitution, your Article 6, Paragraph 2 of your Constitution. I want you to, to pay attention to what's going on here. Learn to read about this Marbury versus Madison case. I want to show you, pardon my reach again, this right here is an example of what is called Shepherd Citations. Shepherd Citations is a group of reporters that go through and keep track of all the court cases that have come before the courts, especially the Supreme Court. And they clarify before the court all of the cases. Each one of these little numbers here represents somebody hiring a lawyer and going to the Supreme Court. Every one of these. There's nine pages of these folks. Almost 200 years worth that goes against this case, Marbury versus Madison. And I want to tell you, this case is still supreme law of the land. If it wasn't, you would see O's in here where it was overturned, okay? You don't see any O's. There aren't any O's. That means the case is standing. There'd be an O in this column right next to here. You don't see any O's because there's no case that could come up against this case. That's how strong this case is, folks. Now, this is nine pages. Each. This is two pages each. 
There's nine pages of this. This represents, if I was to, to, to try and teach you what this represents, if I was building a wall from here to the moon, out of bricks, that's what that would mean in legal terms because that's how solid this case is. So it's very important that you understand your Constitution is an ironclad contract in writing enforceable in the court of law. It's very important that you understand Article 6, Paragraph 2, the Supremacy Clause, which says the Constitution and the laws and pursuance thereof and the treaties made which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. The judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in conflict or repugnancy is null and void of law. It bears no power to enforce, no obligation to obey, purports to settle as if it never existed. Unconstitutionality dates from the enactment. No courts are bound to uphold it. No citizens are bound to obey it. Now that is one of the most important lessons that I can teach you on the Constitution so that you can understand how strong this document is. You see. And when I go to the law library and I hit some of these law libraries, it's wall-to-wall -wall books, folks. I mean, it's like I take people down there and their chins on the ground. And then I tell them there's three floors of this place just like this, filled to the brim with books and books. And did you know that in every one of those cases, this little book right here, this one right here, folks, controls every single book in that law library, every single one. Every single book in that law library is controlled by this little book. So can you understand how important it is for you to know what's in this little book so that you can effectively call on that kind of a commanding knowledge? Okay? It is absolutely vital that you get a hold of one of these books and start learning it and don't let anybody take away your constitutional rights. You, cannot, you can't even give your constitutional rights away. You have to voluntarily acquiesce by signing a document on a Miranda release form. That's how hard it is to give away your constitutional rights. We don't want you to give away any of your rights. We want you to know these rights backward, forward, upside down, and other. We want you to be able to rattle them off. Our soldiers could do it. And they did it with, with the great love in their heart and the pride and the, and the duty that they hold in their heart. And they swore on a sacred oath that they defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And then they perform their duties to the best of their ability, so help them God. And by God, they do, both in the service and out of the service, okay? We defend the Constitution to the death. We never surrender. We are soldiers, above all. And we love our country and our flag and our Constitution. We are what the, the term is under the military code of conduct. I am an American fighting soldier. I serve the forces which guard my country in its constitutional way of government. I am prepared to give my life if necessary in defense of that Constitution. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So I want you to pay attention. A lot of brave soldiers have died to pay for this book so that you could have the right. And the least you could do for your own self's sake is to learn what's in this book and be able to argue effectively what's in this book. You would be amazed how many times you can win if you just have this book and know what's in it. Okay? Now, that we get that by, we're going to go into some other arguments here. We're going to try and show you how to really effectively use this book. Okay? Now that everybody's got that in hand. The next thing we're going to start teaching you is things like about the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is one of the biggies that everybody talks about today and the one that gets railroaded probably the most. The next is the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment, okay? But the Second Amendment is one of the most vital amendments here because our forefathers had such an important understanding of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that was the First Amendment, that they turned around and realized that without the right to protect that first right, they didn't have that right. So the Second Amendment, they, they instituted the right of the people to keep and carry arms and that right shall not be infringed. Now, they started out by saying a well-regulated militia being necessary for the maintenance of a free state, okay? 
Isn't that a true statement, folks? A well-regulated militia is necessary for the security of a free state. That's just a true statement. So is oranges are orange. That's why they call them oranges, okay? But that doesn't have any legal precedence in theory. The most important part about that Second Amendment is it says the right of the people. And the Supreme Court has ruled in hundreds of cases that whenever it says the right of the people, it means the right each of every single citizen to possess the right equally. Now, a lot of guys like to hand out this Manola that, well, that's a collective right. You've got to be a member of the militia. That's all who done. You don't have to be a member of the militia. All you have to do is be an American. You have the right. The right to keep and carry arms, and that right shall not be infringed. Now, you will note after infringed, there is no subparagraph A, B, C, D, E, F, G, which would stipulate as to what would be an acceptable infringement. So all infringement is forbidden. Now, who says so? You say so. Do you see that? Does everybody see that? You say so. Who are you? I'm an American. And I'm telling you, you're infringing my rights. You're stealing my rights. I, I, I claim infringement. I claim encroachment. I claim impingement. I claim usurpation. I claim you're stealing my right. Because that's what they're doing. And I ask them, what is it you don't understand about the word infringement? Because that's exactly what it says when you look in Black's Law Dictionary. That's another thing I want to bring up. You want to talk to these people in court. You want to get a hold of one of these books right here. It's called Black's Law Dictionary. You would be absolutely amazed what's in Black's Law Dictionary. This is the exact words. <coughs> Just a second, please, folks. This is the exact words that you need to be able to definitively define the word game problem that we are having with these people today. They like to keep changing the words. But guess what? The words in this book are the words that were written when we were in the Constitution when it was signed. And the definitions that are in this book are enforceable in a court of law. You can bring this book into court and pull it open and say, this is the one, Judge. And they gots to listen. And that's the way it is. So for sure, if you're going to be in this, go down to one of your bookstores, uh, whichever you may have in your area, Barnes & Noble or any one of the dozens of decent bookstores and get a copy of Black's Law Dictionary. You need that to be in this because this is kind of like uh, defining the map of how to get from A to B. You have to have this book to be able to pull it out so that you can turn around and tell them, hey, don't trample my rights. I take a real dim view of that. Another good book you can pick up on the Constitution is this. This American Constitution put out by West Publishing Company. This goes into a whole lot of widened arguments as to your Constitution. Now, after I'm finished talking to you, you're going to have a new concept of Constitution and how it works. You're going to understand that it's what you say it is. If you've got an honest right, now I'll give you a perfect example. Now, the First Amendment basically talks about the right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? But isn't the right to work part of right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? You've got a right to work, right? Contract your labor, your skill, and your time of life as you see fit, right? Does that make sense to you? That's a First Amendment right. Another First Amendment right would be the right to travel freely unencumbered. See, no state can require you to have a license to travel freely unencumbered, and we'll go into that and show you how that is, is taken care of, okay? 
the bottom line is you need to learn as much as you absolutely possibly can in the shortest possible time about your Constitution, because I'm telling you right now, as we speak, they are trying to curtail that Constitution and take away rights that you have that have been given to you from your forefathers. There's only one thing that's going to stop that. Well, maybe two. There's two things. The first thing that's going to stop that, if all of us get together, get a hold of one of these books and start shaking it and say, whoa, R.C., we're not letting you take away that Constitution. This is America. We got an American flag on a pole out front. Last time I checked, this is the United States of America. We got a constitution here, and you ain't touching that constitution. So you call up that Bill McCollum in Washington, and you tell him he's the guy that sponsored that 666 bill to take away the Fourth Amendment right to, uh, to have a search warrant. You get a hold of him, and I'll give you his number later on in the speech here. And you call that joker up and you say, sir, what is it you don't understand about your oath of office? We kind of like you to leave the Constitution alone. As a matter of fact, we'd like you to make it stronger than it is, not take nothing away from it, period. And we resent the hell out of you taking an oath of office to protect the Constitution. And we put you in office, and the first thing you do when you get in there is try and scuttle the Constitution and flush it down the toilet. We're not going to put up with that stuff. We want you to understand that real clearly. The second way we can do it is if necessary and proper, our militias can come together and decide to tell these people that are giving aid and comfort to the enemies of our country by breaking down our laws that you have broken the law of Title 18, United States Code, Section 2381, which says that in the presence of two witnesses to the same overt act or in an open court of law, if you fail to timely move to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and honor your oath of office, you are subject to the charge of capital felony treason, and upon conviction, you will be taken by the posse to the nearest and busiest intersection and at high noon hung by the neck until dead. The body to remain in state until dusk as an example to anyone who take their oath of office lightly. You see, without that oath of office, this Constitution is worthless. That's why we have you take that oath of office so that we know you will honor this oath of office and that you will keep our Constitution. We don't want anybody taking our Constitution away. And we're here to tell you right now, don't do it. We'll take a dim view of it. We probably will charge you. And we're not fooling around. Okay? Now, let's get into some other things in the Constitution. The bottom line here is you have to know to be able to exercise your Constitution. The most important parts about your Constitution are in your first ten amendments, okay? Obviously, the right of the people to keep and carry arms shall not be infringed. And that right shall not be infringed. You must claim your right if you want to have it. You have to be willing to do that. And if they are going to take your right, then you have to be willing to challenge them, whatever it costs. Now, the bottom line is any law that comes in conflict with that, what do we talk about in Article 6, Paragraph 2? If any law shall come in conflict with this, the supreme law, what happens? It's null and void of law. It bears no power to enforce, no obligation to obey, purports to settle as if it never existed, and unconstitutionality dates from the enactment of such a law, not from any date so branded in open court of law. So what happened to the Brady Bill, folks? Canceled due to lack of interest, okay? What happened to the crime bill with the gun infringements? If any portion of the bill be unconstitutional, the whole bill is unconstitutional. Because why? Repugnancy, okay? It's repugnant to the United States Constitution. It's null and void of law. It bears no power to enforce, no obligation to obey. It purports to settle as it never existed. Which case said so? Marbury versus Madison, 5 U.S. 137, 1803. That's how important that case is. That's why you got to go down to your law library and read. Okay? So Marbury versus Madison is extremely important. It's important that you be able to read the case, understand what they're talking about. Now, 
Other cases that are involved are your rights to due process, like under your Fourth and Fifth and Sixth Amendments, right? The right of the people to be secure in their houses. The right of the people to be secure in their person, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. And obviously that would imply, that would imply, that would imply that he'd gone before a judge and said, this is the guy, he did it, this is the crime that was done, and this is the evidence we're looking for, Judge, and we'd like to get a warrant, and we're swearing on everything we told you is the God's truth, and then they can come over and they can search till hell freezes over. Okay? Does that sound logical to you? Now that's what Bill 666 is trying to throw out. They don't want you to have that right anymore. Now it's important for you to immediately jump to the Ninth Amendment. What does the Ninth Amendment say? Enumeration in this Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now basically what that means in simplest of terms. Congress has no authority to add on to the Constitution in such a way that would take away rights previously guaranteed. What seems to be Mr. McCollum's problem? Does he not read the King's English? Simply spoken, he has no authority to pass this 666 bill. The Congress had no authority to pass this Brady bill. They had no authority to pass this crime bill because it clearly infringed on the United States Constitution. I don't care how noble the issue it was. I don't care how learned the people claim to be. They weren't learned enough. Because if they were learned, they would have understood the Ninth Amendment forbids adding on to the Constitution by any laws whatsoever that takes away rights that are previously guaranteed. Excuse me. Now... Let's go on. Let's hit the Tenth Amendment. The powers not delegated to the United States. What, is there, what are they talking about here? The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectfully or to the people. See, this is a limited contract. This contract is designed to limit government. And when you get into your police powers, you start understanding your police powers. Almost you'll hear this all the time. Well, we have police powers, broad and sweeping police powers. You look up Black's Law Dictionary and Police Powers. It says, the law of eminent domain of a state or political subdivision to enact laws for the common good and welfare and to curb crime. And in great big black letters, it says, within constitutional limitations. See the Tenth Amendment. Well, when they're talking about see the Tenth Amendment, this is the Tenth Amendment they're talking about. Now, do they have powers to take away previous rights guaranteed under the Constitution? The answer is obviously no, they don't. Obviously, the Ninth Amendment sets a clear limit on that. What is it these guys don't understand about their Constitution? They pass these Brady bills, they pass these crime bills, they pass these 666 bills to take away your Fourth Amendment right, requiring a search warrant. What is it that they don't understand about the locks on the Constitution? Now, do you see how wise our forefathers were? They knew. They knew history, and they knew that history repeats itself and people forget. So what they did is they set a standard, very importantly, toward the end of the contract that clearly stipulated exactly what limits would be there, you see. And it clearly stipulated that no power has existed to take away rights that were previously guaranteed. So how, therefore, is this being done? I'll tell you how it's being done, because they want to. And they're not doing it by law. Now, why are they getting away with it? Because most of the people don't know any better. 
And if you don't know your rights and you don't timely assert them, latches incurs. Latches being a species of action where in a party of reasonable intelligence and integrity having a right to take an action as is prescribed by law and having failed to timely do so loses our right to proceed. So by you acquiescing, by not jumping up and saying, hey, hold the line, Chester. You ain't touching that Fourth Amendment. You aren't touching that Second Amendment. We're not putting up with that stuff. You took an oath of office, we're going to hold you to it. You violate that oath of office, we're going to charge you with capital felony treason under Title 18 United States Code Section 2381. What difference does it make if they're in open rebellion against the United States or if they're breaking down the laws creating the rebellion? Isn't that giving aid and comfort to the enemies of our country? It most certainly is. And it's called sedition. Treason by sedition. Okay? Now we got to start collaring these guys and telling them, hey... What is it you don't understand about the Constitution and your oath of office? We're going to clearly correct that in the short interim. And if you don't want to fix it, we will remove you. And that's our duty and our responsibility. Now, when Benjamin Franklin walked out of all of the hearings to set up this Constitution, a lady reporter walked up to him and asked him, What is it we have now? And he turned to her and told her, We have a republic if we can keep it. Obviously, the burden is on us to make sure we keep it. So I'm asking you to get a hold of one of these constitutions, and let's plan on keeping it. All right, now let's get into some more of the arguments on the Constitution. Your Fifth Amendment. Let's pull up your Fifth Amendment. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on the presentment or indictment of a grand jury except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject to the same offense be twice put in jeopardy, that's the double jeopardy statute, of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any crime, criminal case, to be a witness against himself, that's a self-incrimination defense, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, that's your equal protection clause. You have an equal right to all of, all of your rights under the law, and you have a right to due process of law. As a matter of fact, if they don't give you due process of law, Title V, United States Code, Section 556D, is clear and specific, and it says if they deny you due process of the law, all jurisdiction ceases automatically. That's, that's Title V, United States Code, Section 556D, also 557, and Section 706 of that code. In other words, if they deny you due process at any time and you can prove it, you can, you can force a showdown and you can turn around and say, well, they might have had jurisdiction at one time, Judge, but they lost it when they denied me due process. All right? Now, the other parts are you cannot deny them life, liberty, property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. You know, how many times do you hear about that today? I mean, it's incredible. The Sixth Amendment is another important one. All of them are important, but there are more important ones, all right? In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and the cause of the action and accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him. That's the right to confront your accusers. To have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in your favor. That's the subpoena rights. And to have the assistance of counsel for your defense, or you can stand as your own counsel. And I know they tell you that it's a fool that stands as his own counsel, but it's my argument that it's a fool that doesn't. Because I'll tell you why. You know your case better than you, better than anybody. 
How many times do you hear about gripes between attorneys and citizens? The biggest gripe they have is, well, he never said nothing about that, or she never said nothing about that. Well, she didn't do this, or she didn't do that. Well, why? Because they don't know the case as good as you do. You're the one that knows your best case. The only thing they know is how to apply the law. So all I'm telling you is learn how to apply the law and your constitutional rights, and then you don't need to do that. The only time you get into trouble is if you run your mouth too much and you get into self-incrimination. So obviously you have to keep your wits about you and watch your mouth. But the bottom line is, actually, I personally believe you're the best person to present the facts of your case because you're the best person that knows all the facts. The only thing you know how to do is how to actually do it in a legal and lawful manner that is recognized by the legal community. And that's really not hard to learn. I can teach you, believe me. All right, the Seventh Amendment. In suits at the common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved. It's supposed to say shall remain. And no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States, because the jury is the ultimate trial of fact. Then according to the rules of the common law. Hmm? Now, we'll get into that common law argument. There's a lot of heavy arguments around that common law. Basically, I don't want to overwhelm you on the first time out of the chute. <clears throat> because that's not hard to do, okay? Now, the bottom law, line of this Constitution is it's all in writing. It clearly represents a contract. I'm asking you to learn your contract. I'm asking you to learn the book. Learn your contract. I mean, when you go to some place to do some work on your car, you read the document that comes with it for the warranty, don't you? Why? Because just in case something goes wrong, you want to be able to bring it back, right? Well, I'm asking you to read the warranty on your Constitution so that you can understand the rights that you have under that Constitution so that if you don't get it right, we can bring it back. Does that make sense to you? All right. Now, it's also important that you understand that this Constitution is a very unique document and that this Constitution is supposed to be enforced, and I'm going to teach you some things here right now. This is a program, I don't know how it's coming out here. This right here is representation. I know it's kind of hard to see here, but basically what we're talking about here is this comes from the books that tell the judge how, right here and over here, this comes and tells the judge how the Constitution is to be interpreted. This is from the Amjuris Prudence volumes, and this is volume 16. You want the Constitutional Law section, right here, Constitutional Law, and you want Section 97. And when you start reading it, the most important part about it, and I'll read it, is that a Constitution should, relieve, should receive a liberal interpretation in favor of the citizen is especially true with respect to those provisions which were designed to safeguard the liberty and security of the citizen in regard to both person and property. Can you see that? Can you all see that? That coming out right here. Over more. Okay. All right. To safeguard the liberty and security of the citizen in regard to both person and property. See note 31. Brides first United States 273 U.S. 28 and all of these 40 Supreme Court cases hold that axiom. In other words, it's supposed to be liberally enforced in favor of the citizen for the protection of rights and property. And a constitutional provision intended to confer a benefit should be liberally construed in favor of the clearly intended and expressly designated beneficiary. 32. But on 32, DeJammer versus Hospital Authority of Albany in all of these cases. Okay, you see that? Let me help you out here. 
Okay, is it in? Alright. I'm just trying to tell you, you can go look this up and you can better see it. Can you see it clearly now? Okay. Alright, now, let's do that over again. And a constitutional provision intended to confer a benefit should be liberally construed in favor of the clearly intended and expressly designated beneficiary. Similarly, a provision intended, similarly, a provision intended to afford a remedy to those who have just beneficial construction for the purpose of extending their within the meaning of the terms, and that's Ryder versus of Ohio. That's note number 33, okay? Now, this comes out of 16th Am jurisprudence. In other words, I have this constitution. This constitution is a contract in writing enforceable in the court of law pursuant to the statute of frauds. I'm asking for specific performance, Your Honor, in favor of me. I am the beneficiary of the contract. There's also a basic premise in contract law, basic contract law 101 of any first year law student that says, the contract shall be enforced most favorably in favor of the non-preparer. And that's you. You didn't prepare it. Now, if you believe honestly that you have a right and you can timely bring that right before a proper adjudicated authority, and you can clearly stipulate as to what your right was, guess what? They got to listen. That's the way it is. That's the way it's supposed to be. And I'm telling you, if you know your rights and you timely assert those rights, you have those rights. But if you sit on your haunches and you cry foul, <clears throat> that's terrible. Somebody ought to do something about that. Hey, be a somebody. Do something about it. Don't sit there telling me that somebody ought to do something about that. Be a somebody. You do something about it. You honestly got an honest bitch. You go out there and you take care of it. Because that's what it takes to be an American. That's what, all, that's what it's all about. That's what being an American is all about. That's what separates you from the rest of the whole world. Because Americans, you don't trample on their rights because they're going to come get you. You do not trample on their rights. They won't put up with it. So be an American and don't put up with it. Stand up there and be counted. Now, I want to read the next argument there, which is argument number 98, which basically deals with the effect of an emergency. Argument 98... Does everybody see that there? Get it there? Pretty good. All right. Argument 98. While an emergency cannot create power and no emergency justifies the violation of any of the provisions of the United States Constitution or state constitutions, public emergencies such as economic depression. All right. Go over here to the next page. What happened here? All right. All right. Let's go for especially liberal construction of constitutional powers. And it has been declared that because of national ex exigency, it is the policy of the courts in times of national peril so liberally to construe the special powers vested in the chief executive as to sustain and effectuate the purpose thereof. And to that end, also more liberally to construe the constituted division and classification of the powers of the coordinate branches of the government. And insofar as may not be clearly inconsistent with the Constitution, right? In other words, it can't be in conflict with the Constitution to vest extraordinary powers in the chief executive. But I'm telling you, on the other hand, a contention that a grave emergency, such as the Depression, should permit construction of the constitutional provisions which would meet the emergency was rejected. In one case, the court holding that neither the legislature nor any executive or judicial officer may disregard the provisions of the Constitution in cases of an emergency. 
where the plain and unequivocal terms of the Constitution present to question of construction as to departures in emergencies. So not even an emergency justifies the taking away of constitutional provisions. And I know you've heard differently. I know you think, well, they got an emergency. They just declare an emergency, and then they, the president issues an executive order. But let me ask you, if it's a repugnant of the Constitution of the United States, is it law? No. Who says so? We do. We're the people. It's our country. It's our Constitution. We're the ones that say you can't do that. And we mean it. You better, you better listen. All right, now, let's get into the next argument here. Now, I'm, I hope I'm not boring you to tears here, but it's kind of important that we cover these basic things so that you can understand. As to the construction ref with reference to the common law, an important canon of construction is that, that constitutions must be construed with reference to the common law. That means the law of the little people out there, not the corporations, okay? Since in most respects the federal and state constitutions did not repudiate but cherished the established common law, this fact has been taken into consideration by the courts in construing certain clauses in a state constitution, such as the provision securing the right to a jury trial. Also provisions in regard to crimes have been interpreted with reference to the common law rule that one that one charged with a crime may be convicted of a lesser offense necessarily included in the crime charged. In such cases, the courts of the state always regard the language in the common law sense. So the common law prevails. Don't let anybody tell you this admiralty law prevails because it only prevails if you get sucked into it. We're not going to let you do that. We're going to teach you how to beat it. The common law also permitted destruction of the abatement of nuisances by summary proceedings. Traffic tickets, folks. That's what a traffic ticket does. It is a writ of assistance, a bill of attainder. It's unlawful in the United States of America. And it was never supposed that a constitutional provision was intended to interfere with this established principle. And although there is no common law of the United States in the sense, who said so? Erie Railroad versus Tompkins. Okay. All right. Of a national customary law as distinguished from the common law of England adopted in the several states in interpreting the federal constitution recourse may still be had to the aid of the common law of England it has been said that without reference to this common law the language of the federal constitution could not be understood so the common law applies folks and we're going to get into that common law heavily in the advanced section all right Okay. Now let's get back into this. In interpreting the federal constitution adopted by the several states, all right, the recourse may still be had to the aid of the common law of England. It has been said that without reference to the common law, the language of the United States Constitution would not be understood. This is due to the fact that this instrument and the plan of government of the United States were founded on the common law as established in England at the time of the revolution. Okay? Therefore, it is the general rule that the phrases in the Bill of Rights taken from the common law must be construed in reference to the latter. Specifically, the United States Supreme Court has taken the common law into consideration in construing the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment provisions relating. All right? So the common law is extremely important that we get it, and we will cover that thoroughly. It's important to understand that most of you out there aren't citizens at the common law. 
that only only those that understand the differences in admiralty and maritime law, those that are corporations, officers of corporations, or officers of government residing in the District of Columbia, the 14th Amendment duality of citizenship, which is talked about in the case of Erie Railroad versus Tompkins, which is a rather heavy argument. And I will cover that thoroughly with you so that you understand where the traps and the differences are. But for right now, I'm trying to demonstrate to you construction and programming so that you can understand that this Constitution right here is the supreme law of the land. It is a contract in writing. It is enforceable in favor of you. In an open court of law, you are the beneficiary. Okay? I want to give you some basic more points on this AM jurisprudence argument. This is section 114 of the 16th volume of AM jurisprudence second. I'm going to give you a couple more of these sites so that you can understand how powerful a document this is. Okay? Let's go to the next section, which is 115, which is her... Uh, See which one? 117. 117 is the next serious section. They're all serious. By the way, I highly recommend you go down to the law library, grab that 16th volume of jurisprudence, start at section 1, and start paging through to section 300. You will absolutely be astounded. We are now in 16th AM jurisprudence, second, section 117. And I will read it to you. Basically, various facts and circumstances extrinsic to the Constitution are often resorted to by the courts to aid them in determining its meaning. As previously noted, however, such extrinsic aids may not be resorted to where the provision in the question is clear and unambiguous. In such a case, the courts must apply the terms of the Constitution as written. And they are not at liberty to search for meanings beyond the instrument, which that militia argument and that collective law theory of the Second Amendment is. They're reaching. They're reaching far. All right? Clearly it says in the plain English, the right of the people to keep and carry arms shall not be infringed. Now, what is it you don't understand about the word infringed? They're infringing. The Brady Bill, it's infringement. 1968 Gun Control Act, it's infringing. All of these, uh, the CCW acts of these states, they're infringing. Who says so? You do. How shall a document be enforced in favor of who? You. When are you going to enforce it? You're the one that is the, the citizen. All power is inherent to people. You're the one with the power. Enforce your power, all right? Does everybody understand that argument? That's the magnificence. I'm bringing the genie out. We're stroking the bottle here, and I'm going to bring the genie out here in a second. You're going to understand the magnificence of the power of this book. You see, once you understand this is an ironclad contract, once you understand that this is enforceable in the court of law pursuant to the statute of frauds, once you understand you have a right to claim specific performance on the contract, your Honor, I'm demanding my right to keep and carry arms, and that right shall not be infringed. I want specific performance. I am the holder of the contract. It's supposed to be enforced in favor of me. I am the clearly intended and expressly designated beneficiary, the citizen. I want the thing protected in favor of my right. Does that make logical sense to you? Now do you start to understand the power of this document? Okay? See, before, you just thought it was a bunch of writing in some, in some uh, textbook that you had to take when you took a civics class in high school in the 11th grade. See, I want you to understand that you don't leave home without this. This is more important than your credit card. Okay? Next, let's get into the next section. I'm going to cover some more of these amateurs' prudence sections so that you can understand. I want to get into uh, section 155. 16th Amjurisprudence, 2nd Section 155. 
since the Constitution is intended for the observance of the judiciary as well as other departments of government, and the judges are sworn to to support its provisions. Got me? Sworn? As an old law office sworn? The courts are not at liberty to overlook or disregard its commands or countenance evasions thereof. It is their duty in authorized proceedings to give full effect to the existing Constitution and to obey all constitutional provisions irrespective of their opinion as to the wisdom or the desirability of such provisions and irrespective of the consequences. Thus it is said that the courts should be in our alert to enforce the provisions of the United States Constitution and guard against their infringement by legislative fiat or otherwise. In accordance with these basic principles, the rule is fixed that the duty in the proper case to declare a law unconstitutional cannot be declined and must be performed in accordance with the deliberate judgment of the tribunal before which the validity of the enactment is directly drawn into question. If the Constitution prescribes one rule and the statute another and a different rule, it is the duty of the courts to declare that the Constitution and not the statute governs in cases before them for judgment. Does everybody understand that? He's, they're telling the judge, you got a rule in favor of the Constitution. And if you know your Constitution, Whose favor are they going to rule in? Yours. But you have to have enough hair on your tail feather to walk in there and say, hey, I'm an American, and I have a constitutional right. That right shall not be infringed, and you're infringing. And I'm asking you not to do that, because it's not nice. And I'm asking the judge to do his duty under his sworn oath of office and uphold the United States Constitution as he swore he would under Article 11, Paragraph 1 in this state, which says that he shall swear to protect and defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic, and he will perform his duties to the best of his ability, so help him God. Now, let's get closer to so help him God. Now, right, let's get into another one of these. we got a load of them, folks, so let's bear with me here. 16th Am Jurisprudence, 2nd Section 177. Declaratory judgments. Declaratory judgment actions have often been utilized to test the constitutionality of a statute and government practices. The Uniform Declaratory Judgments Act makes specific provisions of the determination of construction or validity of statutes and municipal ordinance by declaratory judgment and is considered to furnish a particularly appropriate method for the determination of controversies relative to the construction and validity of the statutes and of ordinances. The Federal Declaratory Judgment Act, although it does not mention declarations as to the construction or validity of the statutes, has been invoked frequently as a means of assaying the constitutionality of congressional legislation. A plaintiff can have a declaratory judgment action on the constitutionality of either the federal or state statute by a single federal judge. So long as he does not ask to have the operation of the statute enjoined, you can't enjoin a constitutional right. A court may grant declaratory relief unless there is a case of controversy before the court. That is, the dispute must consist of specific adverse claims based upon present rather than future or speculative facts on which to base the adjudication. All right? I'm trying to tell you folks here, you have a right to demand a declaratory judgment, which we are going to do in several of our cases here. And they got to declare 
is it constitutional or isn't it constitutional? If it's constitutional, it has to be judged in favor of who? You, the citizen. Why? Because you're the, the beneficiary. It's supposed to be enforced in favor of you, the beneficiary, the citizen, for the protection of rights and property. See Breyer's First United States, 273 U.S. 28. And the 40 Supreme Court cases that support that mandate. Okay? Now let's get, there's just a couple more here. Bear with me. I know you're probably bored to tears right now, but I don't want you to do that. I want you to pay attention. Okay, we're at Section 255. 16th Amateur Jurisprudence, Section 255. In all instances where the court exercises its power to invalidate legislation on constitutional grounds, the conflict of the statute with the Constitution must be irreconcilable. The Brady Bill. Irreconcilable. Huh? In other words, the court is without authority to declare a statute unconstitutional unless it is in positive or direct conflict with the statute or with the Constitution. Thus, a statute is not to be declared unconstitutional unless so inconsistent with the Constitution they cannot be enforced without a violation thereof. Because that would be violating the Constitution. We can't have that. What happened in Marbury versus Madison? 5 U.S. 137. Same thing. A clear incompatibility between law and the Constitution must exist before the judiciary is justified in holding the law unconstitutional. This principle of, is, of course, in line with the rule that doubts as to constitutionality should be resolved in favor of the constitutionality and the beneficiary, you, the citizen for the protection of your rights and property. Okay? Does everybody pick up on that? Now, let's, let's shift to 256. 256, right here. The general rule is that an unconstitutional statute, whether federal or state, though having the form and name of law, is in reality no law, but is wholly void and ineffective for any purpose, since unconstitutionality dates from the time of the enactment and not merely from the date of the decision so branding it. Wouldn't it be interesting if 34, 34, where's 34? There's 33, where's 34? Here's 34. There's 35, all right, here's 34. State X Rel versus Nguyen V. Greer. But I'll tell you what, Marbury versus Madison comes higher than that, okay? All right, 34, let's cover that again. And ineffective for any purpose. Since the unconstitutionality dates from the time of the enactment and not merely from the date of the decision so branding it, an unconstitutional law in legal contemplation is as inoperative as if it never had been passed. The Brady Bill, the Crime Bill, the 1968 Gun Control Bill, all these bills. Such a statute leaves the question that it purports to settle just as it would be had the statute not ever been enacted. Go on. No repeal. No repeal of an enactment is necessary. Since an unconstitutional law is void, the general principles follows that it imposes no duties, confers no rights, creates no office, bestows no power or authority on anyone, affords no protection, and justifies no acts performed under it. A contract, did everybody pick up on that keyword? Contract? A contract which rests on an unconstitutional statute creates 
no obligation to be impaired by subsequent legislation. No one is bound to obey an unconstitutional law, and no courts are bound to enforce it. Persons convicted and fined under a statute subsequently held unconstitutional may recover the fines paid. A void act cannot be legally inconsistent with a valid one, and an unconstitutional law cannot operate to supersede an existing valid law. Indeed, insofar as a statute runs counter to the fundamental law of the land, the Constitution, it is superseded thereby. Since an unconstitutional statute cannot repeal or in any way affect an existing one, if a repealing statute is unconstitutional, the statute which it attempts to repeal remains in full force and effect. And where a, well, what did I say there? Remains in full force and effect. Is the Second Amendment in full force and effect? You better believe it. Okay? Now what is it they don't understand about infringement? Trying to create a new federal bureaucracy. 
Whereas at the World Summit of Children in September such and such, to sign the World Declaration of Survival Protection and Development of Children, which would include commitment to work and promote earliest possible ratification and implementation under the United Nations and Conventions of the Right of the Child. Whereas the House of Representatives passed a resolution during the 101st Congress urging the President to seek consent of the Senate to ratification of the Convention of the Rights of the Child. But such action having not occurred, it is necessary that the Congress implore the President to take action on the Convention now. And now they want to push it. All right. Now you got to understand, folks. They're not doing this for the children, believe me. They're doing it because they want to create some new kind of problem. Children tomorrow, I apologize to you on behalf of those in my time for the things we didn't do. We didn't stop the tyrants so your fate could be prevented. We watched them steal our freedom, but our silence we consented. We didn't choose to circumvent the doom you've not escaped, while the Bill of Rights was murdered and the Constitution raped. Some of us were lazy and too busy, others too afraid, to think about our children, the ones we have betrayed. We say we were too busy to be concerned or care, to try to ease the burden of the chains we've made you wear. A debt of 17 trillion, more money than exists, because we fail to heed God's call of usury resists. We could have been good shepherds when the wolf got in the fold, yet watch the flame of freedom die, which leaves you in the cold. We changed our great republic, which was forged in blood for liberty, to a socialist welfare state, which we call democracy. I'm sorry we were so timid, betrayed by a selfish generation. We left yet a remnant of a free and prosperous nation. I'm sorry for our action like sheep we have behaved. We could have left you freedom instead you are enslaved children of tomorrow descendants of our land i'm sorry we allowed this fate you now must understand children of tomorrow educate yourself if by reading the bible of the bible to break the chains we left you with maintain god's ten commandments use reason logic and common sense suffer the little children to come to me for such is the kingdom of god dennis byron come off of the Amateur Radio Freeman's Bulletin Board, August, September 1992, end of transmission. So I think you can see here, at one time they pretend to do all this, and yet on the other, they do all that. So I thought this was very poignant uh, thing to put out on the air and try and hammer across, okay? Now we want to cover some other things. We want to cover the Brentwoods Agreement Act. Trying to hustle up here. What do we got going there? Let's see. Angle series. Oh, boy. That's the treason statutes, the 22 USC. We want to go for Jerry Railroad versus Tappan. That's the last thing I want to cover. United States. We got Marshall versus Kansas. We got uh, constitutional arguments. Civil rights. Share so many arguments. Oh, yeah, we want to cover the one dash Remember, I told people about the one dash We want to cover about the one dash Remember, I told you sign your name one dash UCC one dash without prejudice. This is it right here, folks. This is uh, the one dash Uniform Commercial Code. Can you get that? Okay. Got it. All right. This section provides machinery for the continuation of performance along the lines contemplated by the contract. What contract? The bankruptcy contract. Despite, that's in 1933, the pending, all right, pending dispute by adopting the mercantile device of going ahead with delivery acceptable 
acceptance or payment without prejudice under the protest under reserve with reservation of all our rights and the like all of those all of these phrases completely reserve all rights within the meaning of this section this section therefore contemplates that limited as well as general reservations and acceptance by a party may be made subject to satisfaction of our purchaser subject to acceptance by our customer or the like this section does not add any new requirement of language of reservation where not already required by law but merely provides a specific measure on which a party can rely as he makes or concurs in any interim adjustment in the course of performance when they say performance they're talking about contractual performance it does not affect or impair the provisions of this act such as those under which the buyers right remedies for defect survive acceptance without being expressly claimed if notice of the defect is given within a reasonable time nor does it disturb the policy of those cases which restrict the effect of a waiver of a defect to reasonable limits under the circumstances even though no such reservation is expressed now this is all what they're talking about when you write down without prejudice they're telling you you have a right to reserve your right so i'm telling you to use it don't screw around sufficiency of the reservation any expression you see that any expression indicating an intention to preserve rights is sufficient such as without prejudice under protest under reservation with reservation of all our rights under duress is another one the code states an explicit reservation must be made explicit undoubtedly is used in place of express to indicate that the reservation must not only be expressed but it must also be clear under duress that such a reservation was intended in advance right the term explicit as used in UCC 1-207 means that which is so clearly stated or distinctly set forth that there is no doubt as to its meaning. Okay? Now that is the reservation I want you to claim. I want you to screw around. I want you to use your head for something other than a hat rack. Because I'm telling you. You just do it. Too. Just do it. Yeah, just do it. Yeah, you don't tell them nothing. You sign it and you walk out. When they ask you what that is, just say that's something I put down on my signature every time so I know it's me. You didn't learn all this stuff overnight, and you're not going to give somebody these classes overnight. Believe me. If you think you're going to teach somebody this stuff all night, you're dreaming. It takes a long time of serious study to get to the level of where you're at. And you're not going to deliver that to anybody overnight. So my sincere advice is don't try and do it because it ain't going to happen in your lifetime. Just sign it, do what you're supposed to do. If people want to listen, then you let them listen. If they don't want to listen, then you say, oh, well, I knew that. Okay? Now, let's go on here because i got a bunch of stuff to cover and we're running out of time. All right, what do we got here? 
cover the militia. There's a lot of people you're hearing talking about the militia. I want to get the Brenton ones to reunite, too. If we can. Let me see here. I know we had it. some of these things. Under executive order of the president, all persons required to deliver on or before May 1st, 1933. Try and blow that up. That's a good one. That's all your gold and silver. I want to make sure we get into all kind of arguments here. Real quick question. Should we have some gold and silver? By law? Should we have some? Yes, yes. I think you should set aside some serious money to put in. I think people shouldn't have everything in gold and silver. I think you should have... I think you should buy toilet paper, and I think you should buy food, and I think you should buy cough medicine, and I think you should buy laundry soap, and I think you should buy, you know, have some stuff around like you would keep your normal business and put a little bit in gold and silver. I think you should have a pump shotgun in your closet to defend your house. Something, yeah, something to defend your house. Not that you may need it, but if you do, you got it. I think you ought to seriously consider... All right, we got the militia here. That's one of the next pieces we want to talk about, the militia. All right, let's do that. I'll bring that Brentwood's Agreement Act in yet. That's also serious business. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Got us good. Here we go. Now, here we go, folks. This is the Brentwood's Agreement Act. And this is the Agreement Act that, that created this problem with this Title 22 United States Code Section 286. Okay. This is heavy duty, folks, so uh, remember I showed you about treason. Okay. No person shall be entitled to receive any salary or other compensation from the United States for services as a government executive director, counselor, alternate, or, or associate, right? Congress, by law, authorizes such action. Neither the president nor any person or agency shall, on behalf of the United States, request or consent to any change in the quota of the United States under Article 3, Section 2. The Articles of Agreement of the Fund, the Fund, the International Monetary Fund. All right, let's pull it up here. All right, they're talking about dollar under paragraph six. Okay, that's not what I want. I want. Let's see. Make any loan to the fund or bank. Approve the establishment of any additional trust fund for the special benefit of the single member or of a particular segment of membership of the fund. Yeah. All right, let's see. In order to carry out the purposes of the decisions of January 1962 of the executive directors of the International Monetary Fund, the Secretary of the Treasury is authorized to make loans not to exceed two, looks like billion, yeah, outstanding at any one time to the fund. If it sounds like I'm hammering on that fund, that's because I am. Under Article 7, Section 1, subparagraph I of the Articles of Agreement of the Fund, I mean, they set this thing up. The Secretary of the Treasury, with the approval of the President, directly or through such agencies as he may designate, is authorized for the account of the fund established in this section to deal in gold and foreign exchange and such other instruments of credit and or securities as he may deem necessary to the consistent constituent. No, consistent. And consistent with... United States obligations in the International Monetary Fund. The Secretary of the Treasury shall annually make a report on the operation of the fund to the President and to the Congress. That makes the Secretary of Treasury what? An officer of the fund. 
Okay. The Secretary of Treasury, yeah, he is guilty. The Secretary of Treasury is authorized to issue gold certificates in such form and in such denomination as he may determine against any gold held by the United States Treasury. The amount of gold certificates issued and or outstanding shall at no time exceed the value at the legal standard provided in Section 2 of Power Value Modification Act 31, United States Code. 449 on the date of enactment of this amendment of the gold so held against gold certificates. There are any gold certificates. The amendment made by sections 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 of this act shall become effective upon entry into the force of the amendments approved in the resolution number 31-4 of the Board of Governors of the Fund. And this is called the Brentwoods Agreement Act, folks. And this is what set up Title 22 United States Code, Section 286A, which says that these officers are paid out of the fund. They're not paid as United States employees. Capiche? Is there any doubt in your mind now who gets paid where? They don't. We don't pay them. They're paid by somebody else, the fund. Who is the fund? All of those rich guys that are sitting over here that are trying to control our country. All right? Now. Okay, let's move on here. we got things to do. I want to show you something else, too. Let's look at the very first book of title to of the United States Codes Annotated. And I don't care which section you grab. Grab either uh, Lawyer's Edition or if you grab... Uh, I want you to take a particular note to this and pay close attention. I want this amplified if you can do it. I want it to read right here. The part where it says, this title has been enacted into positive law. Notice the little asterisk right here, folks. There's a little asterisk right here. Everybody see that? Can you see that? You see my pen? Move it till you see my pen point come in. You see my pen point? All right, all right. This title has been enacted in as positive law. Okay? Notice the little asterisk. When you come down here, and all all these titles have got the little asterisks. They're all part of the law. Title 11 bankruptcy, Title 13 census, Title 14 Coast Guard, you know, copyrights, you got crimes and criminal procedure, Title 18, right? Now, I want you to notice something as we come over to Title 26 here. Title 26 is the Internal Revenue Code. It's never been enacted into law. It's a regulation. Can you get it? Can you get it? See that? closely, Title 26 and Title 27. Do you see an asterisk there? You don't see one, do you? No, sir. <clears throat> That's because there ain't one. <laughs> now, let's look at the other version. The other version is exactly the same. This, this is the one out of the official U.S. reports for titles. And this one says, can you get my pen? You tell me when. All right, sir. Okay. This title has been enacted as law. Look at all the titles that got an asterisk. You'll notice again, Title 26 and Title 27, Zippo. No asterisk. Everybody see that real clear? Pull it over. No asterisk. Obviously, it's never been enacted as law. How could it be? I'll tell you how. We got a case over here called Erie Railroad versus Tompkins, and I'm gonna bring it to your attention. Erie Railroad versus Tompkins is a magnificent court case. Basically, what this court case did, this court case is recorded at volume 304, United States Reports, 
section, or page 64, is the start of the case. That's 304, volume 304, United States Reports, section 604. Now, what this case does is it sets up a duality of citizenship. There are the citizens that live with the common law, and there are the citizens that live with the national law, or what is called admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. Now, the way they get away with putting this Title 26 and this Title 27 out, the way they do it, is they create this admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, and if you volunteer into it, you are in it. If you step in it, it's on you. Okay? So I'm telling you, don't do that. You know what the doctor says. Every time you go to the doctor, you say, Doc, every time I do this, it hurts. You know what the doctor tells you? He says, don't do that no more. You don't do that no more, it won't hurt, right? I'm telling you, the same thing applies to this. Don't volunteer. How do you volunteer? You enter and you watch what you sign, number one. Any evidences of contracts where you are an admiralty or maritime jurisdiction says that you are a party to the contract. So you avoid that. When you sign that bank draft to get into that bank and that Section 9 form you fill out, guess what? Look at the bottom. You sign to get into an admiralty maritime jurisdiction. What the hell would you want to do that for? It's illogical. When you signed up for that Social Security check. So, <clears throat> how are we going to remedy this situation? 1-207, without prejudice. You sign anything that has to do anything with those guys, take the rights that they'll give them to you. Take the benefits. But make sure when you sign it, you sign it UD 1-207 without prejudice. And that makes you a common law citizen. And when they pull you into these courts and they claim they have jurisdiction over you, you say, the first thing out of your mouth is, Your Honor, may it please the court, before this matter goes forward, I wish to state that I am here on a special appearance as distinguished from a general appearance, and I am answering in the form of a demure. A demure is an old way of pleading. It's an old-fashioned, old-country, barrister, English way of pleading without granting jurisdiction. In other words, I'll answer out of courtesy, and I'll give you an answer out of courtesy, but at no time am I granting jurisdiction, and I put on my briefs. I state my name, I state the defendant, in propria persona, on a special appearance as distinguished from a general appearance for jurisdictional challenges. Now, I've raised the issue of jurisdictional challenges. I'm putting on the record. It's clearly cognizant. Once jurisdiction is raised, the, the burden is on the plaintiff to prove jurisdiction pursuant to uh, McNutt versus General Motors Acceptance Corporation recorded at 56 Supreme Court 502. It says, jurisdiction may never be assumed, but must be substantively proven by the plaintiff claimant. They don't prove it in a timely fashion, latches incurs. Latches is a species of action where a party of reasonable intelligence and integrity having a right to take an action as is prescribed by law and having failed to timely do so, loses all right to proceed. So if they don't prove it timely, motion to dismiss, Your Honor, failure to state a cause of action for which relief can be granted, and I'd kind of like to collect my costs and fees for having to defend this frivolous case. Does that make sense to you? All right, now, let's get into this Erie Railroad case. This is a railroad case. What it's about is a guy was walking down the track, and a board was hanging off the end of the train and whacked him upside the head. He tried to sue in the state courts. The state courts uh, hammered him. So what happened was... Erie Railroad had flipped around and they tried to sue him in the federal courts to get back at him. And they thought they were pulling a fast one. And what happened was the case bounced back on him. And guess what? When it bounced back, it created a very, very dangerous thing. Now, before this, I want you to understand that for 100 years of law, this case was the one that was the leading case before this. And this was called McCulloch versus Maryland, the state of Maryland. This is a very leading case. This is the most heavy case. It comes in two sections. That's the tells you how thick it is. So you're going to be reading for a while. This case upheld for 100-plus years, practically almost 100 years. This case is recorded at... Oh, where are we at here? 
Where is the site? The site is, uh, come on, give me a break. It's page 316. What is the volume? You guys are messing with me. You see a volume in there? Well, let's see what they call out here. They call up the beginning of the case. Well, we'll get you the volume. I should know it by heart, but I don't. Let's see if we can get it. It's an 1819 case. It is an old case. And it upheld for years the uh, single citizenship relationship. And it deals with the corporations. The power of establishing a corporation is not a distinct sovereign power or end of government, but only the means of carrying into effect other powers which are sovereign. Whenever it becomes an appropriate means of exercising any of the powers given by the Constitution to the government of the United Union, it may be exercised by that government. Now, basically, it sets up relationships. The Bank of the United States has constitutionally a right to establish its branches or other offices in dis discount and deposit within any state. Right? The state within which such branch may be established cannot, without violating the Constitution, tax that branch. Right? Now, it goes into some heavy arguments on taxes and some other arguments on, on, on programming, but I'm telling you here, this was the law of the land. I want to get a site on this uh, for a uh, reference. This book was so old when we got it from. It should say what volume it is, but it doesn't. Normally they put it in the case and then they'll cite it one time and then they'll say everything after that is supra. They stated it at the beginning. All right. Volume four. Volume four. No, wait. That's not really good. It's probably, you see these reporters in the early, this was 1819, folks. That's when this case came down. So this was going to be, you know, shortly after the Constitution was signed. <laughs> 1791 is when the Constitution was signed, so it's going to be an early case. All right, William McCullough, defendant, blow in your branch. Normally they state the case one place and they state it. But anyway, to make a long story short, McCulloch versus Maryland is a very heavy case. It was the law of the land and it was replaced by Erie Railroad versus Tompkins. There is no federal, can you see that? There is no federal general common law. Congress has no power to declare substantive rules of common law applicable in a state, whether they be local in their nature or general, whether they be commercial law or in part of the law of torts. And no clause in the Constitution purports to confer such a power upon the federal courts, except in the matters governed by the federal Constitution or by acts of Congress. The law to be applied in any case is the law of the state. Got me? And whether the law of the state shall be declared by its legislature in a statute or by its highest court in a decision, not a matter of federal concern. Now, in disapproving the doctrine of the Swift versus Tyson, the court does not hold unconstitutional Section 34 of the Federal Judiciary Act of 1789 or any other act of Congress. It mere Title 26. Huh? It merely declares that by applying the doctrine of that case, rights which are reserved by the Constitution to the several states have been invaded. why they can get away with having Title 26 without having no asterisk. They don't have to have it in law. They're claiming it's an act of Congress. 
And if you voluntarily enter into it, guess what? You bought the whole farm. A federal court exercising jurisdiction over such a case on the ground of diversity of citizenship. What am I talking about? Diversity of citizenship. I'm talking about dual citizenship, right? Is not free to treat this question as one of so-called general law, but must apply the state law as declared by the highest state court, Swift versus Tennyson, overruled. The liability of the railroad company for the injury caused by negligent operation of its train to its pedestrian on a much-used beaten path on its right-of-way interstate, right, along and near the rails depends in the absence of a federal or state statute upon the unwritten law of the state where the accident occurred. Now, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to justify the existence of this duality of citizenship between common law citizen, which you are, most of you, and this natural national citizen, which would fall under Title 26 United States Code. But I'm telling you to look up Section 6331A of Title 26, and you will see that the Treasurer, the Secretary of Treasury has jurisdiction only over corporations, officers of corporations, and officers of government residing in the District of Columbia and artificial corporation who are contractors of the fund, capiche? All right. Now, this is an important case. If you guys are going to be in this seriously battling and want to argue jurisdiction, which is a very good defense on almost anything they can pull on you, you're going to have to read these cases. Erie Railroad versus Tompkins, recorded at 304. That's volume 304, U.S., page 64 is where it starts. It's vital that you understand these arguments. I just finished battling a United States attorney, and we were arguing, and he's talking about this is all gibberish. And I told him, I said, sir, I don't think you're well read on the law. All you got to do is read several of these cases, and they'll tell you, one, there is a duality of citizenship. Two, it has to be clearly defined, and three, I have defined it. And now I'm asking you to prove that I'm not a party, or prove that I am a party. You tell me. It's your burden. You're the one making the complaint. You make the complaint, you get the burden of proof. Who says so? McNutt versus General Motors Acceptance Corporation, 56 Supreme Court, section 5, or page 502. You made it, you prove it. Okay? You don't prove it timely, I motion to dismiss. Fair state of cause of action for which relief can be granted. And I will beat your little tail. So I would highly recommend you get to busy to prove it. Now, if you think the stuff don't work, let me tell you something here. Right here, right today, government came, told me, motion to dismiss, right? United States of America hereby moves pursuant to federal rules of criminal procedure for leave to dismiss the indictment in the case for the statutes, okay? Now, they can't argue. They certificate of service, order dismissing indictment, which the judge will sign. The government having moved to dismiss the indictment in the case of this court being fully advised in the premise that is ordered in the indictment of B and the hereby is dismissed with prejudice and that the defendant's bond is canceled with a sole order and adjudged. Wherefore, the United States requests that this court enter the attached order dismissing the indictment without prejudice, but we'll figure that out. We'll fix that up. See, I don't care if we go to court because I know who's going to win. And I pray to God that he'll help me do that. So if they want to go to court, I tell them, make my day. When I'm in the court, the guy says to me, well, we could get you for an income tax evasion. And you might win one, but you won't win them all. I looked at him most calmly, and I said to him in the clearest and gracious language, I said, sir, I'm going to advise you to go look in them law books real carefully because I'm going to tell you straight out, I have had occasion to look in them law books. And I'm telling you, sir, if you bring that complaint against me, I'm going to tell you to make my day. 
because I'm a pretty serious fellow, and I'm not going to fool with you. I'll sue your socks off and attach everything you own, bank, business, and home. So the best thing I can tell you is before you make a complaint, sir, I would highly recommend that you seriously consider the merits of your facts before you go writing a bunch of dribble. And when we got him today, he's talking about, well, your briefs are nothing but gibberish. So we asked him, he said, well, on our proposed order to have it dismissed, you want us to put it down there for uh, good gibberish shown or just generally good cause shown? So he got a little red in the face and stormed out. But the bottom line is, if you know your facts and you got your stuff together, I'm telling you people out there in TV land, you can do this stuff. I, I, as God is my judge, I, I'm a truck driver. I'm a, I've been an engineer for a while. I've, uh, I'm a fisherman, a hunter, and a guide. Uh, I, I'm a regular person. I just read a lot, okay? I know people like to add stuff in the game, but I, I'm a regular citizen of the United States. I love my country and its constitution, and uh, I'm not fooling around. I want them to honor my constitution, and I don't think that's too much to ask. I think a lot of fine soldiers paid for it. We've had a lot of patriots. Some of the finest people I've ever known have paid for it. Uh, I especially uh, tout uh, Donald Costu, who was the uh, editor of the Constitutionalist newspaper and uh, he's the initiator and starter of the uh, Justice Prosaic movement in this area. Uh, he was a great man. He was a courageous man. Uh, he was found shot to death in his home with a bullet in his nose because obviously he stuck his nose in places it shouldn't have ought to been. He was a tireless defender of the people and the Constitution. Many a time we uh, cruised the countryside uh, doing meetings hither and yon. He wore a white cowboy hat, which we used to joke about. Good guys wear white hats. Uh, he was a, an exceptional personality. He lost everything he owned, fighting to the death. And uh, I, I, uh, I especially offer my, my serious prayers for his soul and for the soul of all patriots who have suffered tremendous things to uh, put on this Constitution and to keep us going. The people with the WWCR radio there, uh, God bless you. Uh, radio Free America, Tom Ballantyne, uh, Bill Cooper, uh, the infamous uh, Jack McLamb from uh, Vampire Killer 2000. The, uh, there's uh, some serious, serious battlers out here, folks, uh, myself included. There's quite a few patriots all around. I can't tell you the names of the people that I feel absolutely privileged to know because the list would be so long here it would take another two hours just for the tape. But I can tell you some exceptional people, and some of them are on bond and they can't be doing that. So, <laughs> so I, I'm respecting their, you know, some of the things. The infamous Eugene May, E.J. May. There's just so many. The infamous No Tax Jim, James Gordon Lott. Uh, I mean, the names are endless. Um, so I'm telling you folks out here, there's a lot of good people out here that are pulling for you that have risked a whole lot, have gone to jail, have stood out in rain protesting. <laughs> Infamous Dave Franklin, who is one of the most leading arguers on constitutional issues of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. Uh, the outstanding uh, Art Morris, who published the book uh, uh, The Greatest Swindle Ever Told, which is about 4,000 pages of documentary evidence on income tax uh, situations. Uh, we're going to share you a couple of arguments in the end, and then we're going to kind of close it off here. 
uh, until the next time. I, I want to thank you very much for inviting me into your home, and uh, hopefully we haven't bored you to tears, and at the same time you will have a new uh, love of your Constitution and your country, and that you will uh, push like hell to make sure these people understand, hey, this is America, pal. Last time I checked, there's a flag on a pole out there, and it's an American flag. We don't want no blue flag out there. We want that American flag out there. And we got a Constitution, and we're going to keep it. If you don't like it, move. Preferably someplace out of here, like Russia or other places. If you like that kind of government, go for it. Knock yourself out. That's what that's what free America is all about. You got a right to any idea you like, just so you don't injure your neighbor. You got a right to free speech, but you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Got me? Does that make sense? Okay. You don't like it here? Move. You want? You don't want to? Exercise your constitutional rights, that's your prerogative, but if you get abused, don't say we didn't tell you. Because uh, God kind of wants us to do this thing, because this is, this is his holy land, and he's hoping that we're going to have enough hair on our tail feather to do it. But I want to get into a couple other arguments. One of the things I want to tell you about is procedure. If you're going to go to court and you're going to be your own attorney, by the way, this is the infamous no tax Jim. He just died, God rest his soul. The infamous James Gordon Lott. I helped the gentleman do his appeal briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I can tell you he was one hell of a gentleman. He can quote tragedy and hope, Quigley's tragedy and hope from uh, from the hip, from memory. He just passed away. Just recently he died. I want you to see how he died, too. Where is it? says, he was alone when he died, Monday, and no services planned, and they cremated his body. He fought to the end. To his last day, he was on the Mark Scott program. There's another exceptional patriot, Mark Scott. I, I can't speak highly enough for the courage it takes to come on the radio and tell God's truth. Uh, there's a lot of people like him. Tommy McIntyre, uh, Mike Reagan. Uh, we could get you a list a mile long. There's patriots that come on and tell it like it is. J.P. McCarthy is another one that gets on there and tells it like it is. I remember this one casual time he got Gus Hall on, and J.P. said to Gus Hall, he says, Gus, don't you get tired of losing? Because Gus was running for president on the Communist Party ticket. And Gus turned to him and he said, J.P., what makes you think we're losing? He said, we've implemented every plank of the Communist Manifesto. We just haven't got the guns from the people yet. And J.P. turned to him and said, yeah, and you ain't going to get them from the people. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, folks, what do you think of that? They're working on it, aren't they? Huh? No. You're going to go to court and you're going to be your own attorney. you got to be sharp. you got to keep records. You go to court, you write it down. You get anything in paperwork, you write it down. You send them anything in paperwork, you write it down. You got me? Don't be screwing around on me because I'm going to tell you, some of these things got dates and times and things that you got to do. And if you don't take care of business, guess what? They ain't going to take care of it for you. You're your own attorney. If you want to, if you want to be your own attorney, you got to have records. you got to keep on top of things. So every time you do something, you write it down. You make sure you can go back and say, yeah, I remember on such and such a date at such and such time, this happened and this happened and this happened. You can construct a chronological order of events, okay? <clears throat> now, also write down all important numbers to anybody that has anything that's got to be done. Okay, now, what we want to get into is we want to get into some serious arguments on uh, taxes. Okay? And also, we should tell you if anybody violates your rights, okay, Title 42, United States Code, Section 1983. Everybody got this? Can you see it? 
Every person who, under color of statute, ordinance, or regulation, customary usage of any state or territory or the District of Columbia subjects or causes to be subjected any citizen of the United States or other person within the jurisdiction thereof to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and the laws shall be liable to the party injured in an action at law, suit, inequity, or other proper proceeding for the redress. For the purpose of this section, any act of Congress applicable exclusively to the District of Columbia. Why do you think they said that? Because they're members of the fund. And they're, they are under Title 26, Section 6331A. Shall be considered to be a statute of the District of Columbia. Now, does everybody understand about admiralty and maritime jurisdiction? I know you don't, but not. Not a little bit. They have created a duality of citizenship under the 14th Amendment. They're claiming there's common law rights, which everybody gets their constitution, and there's national rights where you waive all your constitution. Now, which did you want? Does that sound like a good deal? Sounds like you're being ripped to me. Here we got the 1-207. Remember, 1-207, right? All right, now. Okay. show Jack McClam's magnificent books too, Vampire Killer 2000 and the Aid and Abet Newsletter. We need to get these out to every police officer in the United States of America. They need to understand what the heck's going on here. You get a hold of Jack McClam and his people at Vampire Killer 2000 and they will be happy to put this book out. This explains to your police officers exactly what the heck's going on. And they have an Aid and Abet Newsletter that you can get. Let's get that out, Aid and Abet. Aiden Abet Police Newsletter, P.O. Box 8787, Phoenix, Arizona, 85066, right? And he has a phone number you can call him, too, I think. Now, they have these vampire killers out, and it tells the police everything they need to know. Also, they publish a newsletter, Aiden Abet Newsletter. I want to make sure. Aiden Abet, okay? And get that to your police officers. I have, What I like to do is when a police officer busts me for something, what I like to do is I like to enroll him in a free subscription. And you know what? He hands it out to everybody. Plus, I'm doing him a service. Now, if you folks don't think this is serious, I'm telling you right now, they're building these work camps, these multi-jurisdictional forces and these work camps all over. Notice that most of them are coordinated between Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin. And then they got a bunch more out here in the uh, Wyoming, Idaho, Great West. the Great West, and they got them in California. Then they got these detention facilities. Everybody paying attention to these detention facilities? Notice where most of them are, and what they call them is regional prisons. Look at all the ones here in Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio, or Illinois. There's a bunch of new ones sometimes. Yeah, there is. I know, I know, I know. They prop up and they call themselves... Okay, and then they got battle groups, United Nations battle groups. I mean, we've had reports of Russian troops being in Michigan all summer. And we got positive sightings by people that are retired military colonels and above. And we know they were at Camp Grayling this summer. So I'm telling you folks, the time to wake up is now. Wake up, America, before it's too late. Before you lose your God-given rights to some foreign potentate. You might think that you uh, you look like a sucker. I mean, you want to 
want to buy any apples off that cart? I ain't buying no apples off that cart because I know they're all rotten. Okay. Now, we want to get into um, militia. The next thing we want to get into is the militia, right? And then we want to get into taxes seriously. And that'll be the close for today. Now, those of you who have been in militia groups and everybody's getting all panicky, let's understand a few things about the militia. Whether you like it or not, you are in the militia in the state of Michigan. And I will tell you right where it says that. Article 17, militia, right here. What does it say? And this is from the 1850 Constitution. All the way back in our state to the Northwest Territories they, Treaty, they have a militia. But this is an example of what they're talking about. The militia shall be composed of all able-bodied male citizens between the ages of 18 and 45 years, except such as are exempted by laws of the United States and of the state, but all such citizens of any religious denomination, whatever, who from scruples of conscience, all right, in other words, if you're a conscientious objector, may be adverse to bearing arms shall be excused therefrom upon such conditions as shall be prescribed by law. And they have con conscientious objector status, okay? And you go to the 1908 Constitution, just to show you that this is the God's truth here. 1908 Michigan Constitution. The Michigan militia shall be composed of all able-bodied male citizens between the ages of 18 and 45 years of age, except such as are exempted by laws of the United States or of this state, but all such citizens of any religious denomination who, from scruples of conscience, may be adverse to bearing arms, shall be excused therefrom upon such conditions as shall be prescribed by law. Okay? Now, that's the 1908 Constitution. Now you come up here, now this is just let you know the trend, the trend here. Now, we're in the uh, 1963 Constitution, and in the 1963 Constitution, oh, I wanted to show you a little diverse thing here, this right here. Common law and statutes in continuance in Michigan. The common law and the statute laws now in force, not repugnant to this Constitution, shall remain in force until they expire by their own limitations or are changed, amended, or repealed. So the common law is prevailing. The militia, here we go. I knew we'd see it. Now notice, folks, as the, as the thing as the thing goes on, it gets shorter and shorter. Here's your militia. This is Article Three, Section Four. The militia shall be organized, equipped, and disciplined as provided by law. That's all you get now. Now, when you look in the beginning of this Constitution, there is an there is a, a empowering statutory uh, phrase that says all constitutions before everything they had in them are carried forward to this Constitution, and that's how they're allowed to do this. So, what would happen in this case? Because they haven't clearly defined it here, they would have to go back in the law to the previous Constitution, which would be the 1908 Constitution, which we just read to you. Well, this one right here. So this one would be the militia shall be composed of all able-bodied male citizens, 18 to 45 years of age. So that would be the controlling one because that's as prescribed by law, just like they said. Does everybody see that? Now, the bottom line here, folks, is a lot of people are all upset about the militia. All the militia is is concerned citizens that are worried about their constitution getting flushed down the toilet. We're not putting up with that stuff. We want people to understand that we love the Constitution, we love our country, and we're not screwing around. All right, here we go. Generally, the militia shall be organized, equipped, and disciplined as provided by law. Now, let's get into that. The 
single section is substituted for all of this relating to the militia in the present 1908 Constitution. Remember I told you about empowering? The existing article ties the legislature down to an outmoded concept of what the militia should be. Can you believe that? Why our forefathers will be rolling over in their grave. Details as to organizing, equipment, and disciplining the militia are left to the legislative enactment in the interest of the flexibility and future requirements. Ah, does that mean future requirements if it got nasty and down and dirty, we would have our militia come back? Sounds good to me. I could go for that. Bottom line is the people that know what's going around are not screwing around. They join the militia. Okay. All right, now, Article 10. All right, here we go. Here we go. Article, Article 9. Let's pull this out. The militia, organization and discipline. The legislature shall provide by law for organizing and disciplining the militia in such manner as they shall deem expedient, not incompatible with the Constitution and the laws of the United States. But they're not doing it, right? The legislature shall provide for efficient discipline of the officers, commissioned and non-commissioned, and the musicians and or may provide by law for the organization and discipline of the volunteer companies. Volunteer companies. Notice that. Volunteer companies, huh? Officers of the militia shall be elected or appointed in such manner as the legislature shall from time to time direct and shall be commissioned by the governor. The governor shall have the power to call forth the militia to execute the laws of the state to suppress insurrections and repel invasions. That's what our forefathers had in mind when they had a militia. Now, if they're going to invade us, they're going to change our money, they're going to shut down our Constitution. That's why the militia needs to be organized. That's why you need to be down there talking to a militia. That's why you need to be joining the militia. I don't care what church you go to. I don't care what color, national origin, ethnic background you come from. You need to be down to the militia, and you need to be talking to them folks about... This is the United States of America, and I will protect it and its constitutional form of government. And by doing that, if we do it in sufficient numbers, most probably what will happen is the New World Order scammers will realize, ah, the people woke up, ah, we screwed up. We'll have to wait another 300 years to try and pull it again. And let's hope that's what happens. If that isn't what happens, then the militia will defend the republic, it's just like what our forefathers intended. And we will defend the republic, as we always do with vigor. And we will have a government by constitution. That American flag will be on that pole out there. And anybody that wants to try something different, hey, knock yourself out. But planning a very severe battle because we will never give up the United States of America, its constitutional government, or our American flag, or our American heritage. So this idea that you're going to wear us out, tie us down, otherwise skew us around is nothing but a lot of whodun. It ain't going to happen in your lifetime. As a matter of fact, your lifetime may not be that long either. Because we try traitors in this country. And the bottom line is the penalty for treason is death. And it's not our purpose to threaten or coerce or otherwise intimidate any person. But we want you to understand that this is the United States of America. This is a country governed by constitutional law. That that constitutional law prescribed penalties for criminal acts. And that those criminal acts can be punished by lawful means. We're asking all persons that are involved in all walks of government or there any areas of the law to please, 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 let's get back to the Constitution and quit screwing around. Let's just get back to what's supposed to be done and quit screwing around. Pull back your Federalist Papers and let's start reading. We're going to find out. Everything that's in this book is directly applicable today. We need to do it over. 
We need to get back to a gold and silver standard. We need to get back to a serious means of trade expedience that's going to hold the standards of our country even. We won't have this inflation. We won't have this ridiculous market situation. We're asking you, please, before God, we're asking you. We want our Constitution. We want it back. We want all of the American principles that we stand for, that our brave soldiers died for. And we're asking you to please quit screwing around. Let's get down to brass tacks. You, you've been feeding the pablum to the babies too long. We, we're way, believe me, we're way ahead of you. You may not think so, but I'm here to tell you, we're way ahead of you. You're going to wake up someday and you're going to be shocked. We're going to be all standing out there smiling. Because you're going to be the one that's asleep, not us. We know what we're talking about. We're not fooling around. We want you to honor our Constitution. God bless America. We want you to keep us safe. We want to, we want to be into the 21st century stronger than we were in the 17th century. We're not fooling around, so please. Now, we can go into this book, and this book clearly establishes they never wanted to have a militia or a standing army. They only trusted Listen to some of these arguments in here. Okay. But it is said that the laws of the Union are to be the supreme law of the land. What inference can be drawn from this? Or what would you what would they amount to if they were not to be supreme? It is evident they would amount to nothing. A law by the very meaning of the term includes supremacy. It is the rule which those to whom it is prescribed are bound to observe. This results from every political association. If individuals enter into a state of society of laws of that society must be the supreme regulator of their conduct. If a number of political societies enter into a larger political society, the laws which the latter may enact pursuant to the powers entrusted, entrusted to it by its constitution must necessarily be supreme over those societies and the individuals of whom they are compro composed of. It would otherwise be a mere treaty dependent on good faith of the parties and not a government, which is only another word for a political power and supremacy. But it will not follow from this doctrine that acts of larger society, which are not pursuant to its constitutional powers, but which are invasions of the residuary authorizes of the smaller societies will become the supreme law of the land. These will be merely acts of usurpation, which is kind of what's going on, and will deserve to be treated as such. Hence, we perceive that the clause which declares the supremacy of the laws of the Union, like the one we, we have just before considered, only declares a truth which flows immediately and necessarily from the institution of the federal government. It will not, I presume, have escaped observation that it expressly confines the supremacy to laws made pursuant to the Constitution, which I mentioned merely as an instance of caution in the Convention, since the limitation would have been to be understood through, though it had not been expressed. Though a law, therefore, for laying a tax for a use of the United States would be supreme in its nature and could not legally be opposed or controlled, yet a law for abrogating and preventing the collection of a tax laid by the authority of the state, unless upon imports and exports, would not be the supreme law of the land, but an usurpation of power not granted by the Constitution, as far as an improper accumulation of taxes on the same object might tend to render the collection difficult or precarious. This would be a mutual inconvenience not arising from the superiority or defect of the power. Now, we want to get into some serious arguments here. We want to go to page 108, about the middle of the page. Except as to the rule of apportionment, the United States have indefinite discretion to make requisitions for men and money. That means they can ask. But they have no authority to raise either by regulations extending to the individual citizens of America. That's why we don't have a Title 26 that applies to you. 
The consequences of this is that, though in theory their resolution concerning those objects are laws constitutionally binding on the members of the Union, yet in practice they are mere recommendations which the states observe or disregard at their option. This is the intent of the framers. Cohen versus Virginia, 632-1821 says this is the exact intent. Is it pretty hard for you to understand what their intent was? They never intended to have an internal revenue, ever. They hated people that operated like that, that operated a tyranny against the people. All right, let's get on with this. Wise politicians will be cautious about fettering the government with restrictions that cannot be observed because they know that every breach of the fundamental laws, though dictated by necessity, impairs that sacred reverence, which ought to be maintained in the breast of rulers towards the constitution of a country, and forms a precedent for other breaches where the same plea of necessity does not exist at all, or is less urgent and palpable, Publius. And it teaches us, in addition to the rest, how unequal parchment provisions are to struggle with public necessity. You know, I mean, you start reading. You got to read. Don't sit there like a bump on a log. Read. Get all kind of good stuff going here. I could, I could sit here and read this to you all night. Time is money and knowledge is power. That's why you need the Basic Research Library CD from the American Voice Now. This CD contains the Federalist Papers, which are the definitive writings illustrating the intent of the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalist Papers, which read like a crystal ball to everything gone wrong concerning the present-day Constitution. This CD also contains Bovier's Law Dictionary and the Uniform Commercial Code, plus the inaugural speeches of the U.S. Presidents, the UN Charter, NAFTA, Hitler's Mein Kampf, the full Communist Manifesto, the Patriot Act 1 and 2, the model anti-bioterrorism law, the Homeland Security Bill, the FBI's Project Medigo, and too much more to mention here. The CD contains over a thousand files. To order your CD, go to www.theamericanvoice.com or call us at 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050 for ordering information. You're listening to the American Voice Radio Network on free-to-air KU satellite at Galaxy 25, Transponder 5, Frequency 11836 Vertical. You can listen to the American Voice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. grown in chaos, distrust, and economic depression. A weary populace can seek peace only from the solutions they offer. They have worked until suicide has become so common that it generally calls forth no legitimate investigation. They have used the courts, the judges, the medical profession, and even the Constitution to further their ends. America now has over one million of its citizens in prison for political crimes. So who are they? And how long have they been at this? Psychopolitical Warfare is a 70-page color cover booklet that describes the strategy and tactics behind psychopolitics. Psychopolitics is only $10 from The American Voice. Go to www.theamericanvoice.com or call 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050 for ordering information. 
continue, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival, and I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events. Today is Wednesday, January 11th, 2017. Good afternoon, Al. Hello, Melody. Well, gold had a pretty nice day today. It was hit hard early in trade. Came back to 11.99, pulled back a little bit to 11.92, and we're looking at up 3.70 at 11.92. So a nice day, nice showing for gold today. Silver was down five cents today, but it did have a roller coaster day. Also, we had a low of 16.40, came back quite nicely, 16 dollars and 80 cents. Again, up 0.05. Platinum was down six today at 976. Palladium was down 10, 759. The USDX today was also down 0.20 at 101.82. Crude oil recaptured its losses for the past couple of days, at least a little bit of it. Uh, 1.36 to the upside at 52.18. And the paper markets today. We're going to try to make the 20,000. I guarantee you they'll make it on the 20th of this month. 19,953 for the Dow, up 100 points, up 98. The NASDAQ, another record, up 11, 55.63. The S&P, up 6 at 22.75. The let me see here. The 10-year yield, 2.37, down 0.01, and the euro was 106, up 0.18. European markets, the Asian markets were pretty much flat for the day. 1-800-375-4188 for all your gold and silver coin needs here at Discount Gold and Silver. we got those great pricing on Silver Eagle, so give us a call. Again, 800-375-4188. Those are your 2017s, and today is Wendy Wilson Day. It's Wednesday, and we always enjoy having her on Wednesday's program. Good afternoon, Wendy. Oh, good afternoon, Melody, and hello, Al. Thank you for the intro. That was so sweet. Um, Melody. Hey, I thought today we'd talk about um, kidneys for cash because we've mentioned this before, but this thing is not going away. Um, there's increasing talk about uh, a marketplace where people could sell healthy organs and be compensated for them. In the March 2016 Journal of the American Medical Association, they published some research on the possibility of compensating organ donors. So the study was specifically looking at options for the most popular organ transplant in the United States, which is the kidney transplant. So medical science is reporting that organ donations are down by 14% compared to just 10 years ago. So organ transplant surgery pretty much in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and selling organs will increase the number of transplant surgeries that are done so the medical industry would make a ton of money. So currently there are strict laws on the organ donation and even the harvesting or procurement of organs. And this is to prevent the, the, the medicine from operating what is called an organ commodity market. But some physicians like Dr. Marco Del Charo of the University of Hospital in Stockholm, Sweden, states that, hey, the political climate and the regulations need to catch up with public perception regarding selling body parts or compensation. I think a lot of this has been desensitized, 
with the um, uh, revelation of what, you know, they're doing with aborted fetuses and selling body parts there. So a lot of people think it's no big deal. Uh, but it is kind of scary to me. Uh, the thought that some physicians hold the position that everyone should be an automatic organ donor. Have you heard this, Al, Melanie? Yes, I have. In France, they've just passed laws that essentially ma mandate that people are automatic organ donors in France. That just happened the last week or so. Wow. Well, here's a quote from uh, Dr. Christine Tovis. She's a trauma surgeon for the Medical and Dental Association. She says this, there's a huge need for organ donation and transplantation, and the methods exist to increase the donation rate, such as people would be automatically an organ donor unless they opt out and say no, and organ donors who are identified by their driver's license should be held as, quote, an advanced directive, which overrides family consent, and the pre supposition of transplantation says that if the patient needs an organ, they should get an organ, and those who have organs should provide them. And this would repackage organ donation from altruistic to obligation, end of quote. I, I, I just, my mouth dropped open when I read it. Yeah, I know. I know, it's just scary. You're well, obligated. Somebody is going to be obligated to give up a kidney or whatever to help someone else, and there is that is such a slippery slope that you oh, look at it. Oh, oh my God. I know. I mean, it, you know, like you're obligated to help. So anyway, um, here's a quote from Dr. Jeffrey Campson. He's a surgical uh, dir uh, director at the Kidney and Pancreas Transplant Center at the University of Utah Hospital. He says this, a survey, by, a survey by JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, stated that if we were to give you $10,000 for a kidney, would you be interested? And most people said no. But when we offered $50,000, their interest went up. He says the fact is people die on the wait list, and this compensation is all about increasing the organ pool, end of quote. But here's the thing. Most people don't understand. Dr. Tovis and Dr. Kempson, you know, um, there's a cost for harvesting these organs, and who gets to pay for that? Do you know? No, I don't, but well, I bet you it's not the doctor. Absolutely. So let's say uh, your uncle Jerry is uh, an organ donor and uh, he dies, and they and so they're going to harvest his kidneys. Uh, it's going to cost sixty-five thousand dollars to harvest sixty-five thousand dollars. Right, sixty-five thousand dollars to harvest the set of kidneys, and the bill goes to the family, the the who donated the organs. So it's not the dead guy; it's his family who pays for this. Um, now, organ uh, procurement or harvesting. The family that's donating the organ pays right. sixty-five grand for the privilege of donating a, a, a kidney. Right. Yeah, people don't realize that when people sign up on their driver's license to be an organ donor, how it's going to just really burden whoever's left to deal with it. Um, now, organ procurement can go up to as high as $130,000, depending on what you're cutting out of somebody, like a heart, lungs, or pancreas or something. So the more technical it gets, the more expensive it gets. So now that's the procurement end, which the medical industry gets paid to do, and and then the transplant part, so let's say uh, Jerry's, Uncle Jerry's kidneys are going to go into uh, a motorcycle uh, accident, 
a guy, very young, 20-something, he needs new kidneys, um, $270,000 the motorcycle guy will pay to have the new kidneys installed. So you see how much money they're making on kidneys. I see that. When you say he's going to pay that... He's well, not going to pay that, I guarantee. He can, he's not going to pay it. <laughs> uh, if he had $270,000, he probably wouldn't be out on his motorcycle. In a Mercedes or something like that, if he had that much cash, the well, insurance company's going to pay it, which means the taxpayers are going to pay it. Isn't right. that what's... Yep. Well, uh, there was an article in Science Daily that reviewed statistical evidence that, get this, there's a race of people with organs which offer a lower risk of rejection. This study was at the Henry Ford Hospital Transplant Institute. They offered some very stunning information on the rates at which organs are rejected by the body after they are transplanted. Dr. Rahul Pandey was a lead researcher on the study, and she showed that there's this disparity on patient survival which seems to stem from a race factor. She says they found that kidneys from black donors offered a lower survival rate compared to kidneys from other races. So the statistical information was analyzed from a very large national database called the United Network of Organ Sharing. And Dr. Pandey said she also found an earlier study that also looked at race as an effect on survival rates. And she said the study mentioned the donors of race affect the graft uh, failure rate so that, that non-black recipients which get black donor kidneys have a higher failure rate. So Dr. Pandy states 12% of the kidney donors in the U.S. are from African-American descent. So why is this information significant, Melody and Al? Can you tell me? Yep, because black people probably don't get very many kidneys if they need them. And if white people are getting uh, kidneys from blacks that have a higher failure rate, it, uh, it seems to me there's a problem there. Okay, that's one angle. But the other angle is the this evidence suggests that kidneys from black donors have a higher risk of transplant failure. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.